episode 62 of the much-lauded, uh, highly-delayed, world-famous Tetrapod Zoology pod clangs. I am Naomi of the Rossinante, and I podcast with... Oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Snooky Dog or whatever from The Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's been a little while since uh, we recorded the last episode. Um, well, actually, actually, we should say that we have an episode in the bank at the time of uh, uh, speaking that we haven't released, and that's going to be released imminently. <clears throat> so we've undergone this short hiatus. Mm-hmm. Just the uh, six months? Seven months, eight months, going mm-hmm. on eight months, John, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to say anything intelligent about that before I provide a proper explanation? Well, you were going to provide it. You provide the proper explanation, and I'll correct you. Okay, so it's known as the Great Hiatus, and so in the uh, style of the opening crawl of season three, Red Dwarf. Approximately eight months ago, immediately after recording the last episode of the Fabled Tetsu podcast in July 2017, John and Darren went their separate ways before planning to rendezvous early in 2018. John embarked on the long and grand project of building a house, an achievement approximately completed in the February of 2018. He did nothing else over this long period except occasionally eating and sleeping and drinking and taking drugs. After completing preparation for the Manchester run of the Travelling Dinosaurs in the Wild experience in the August of 2017 and submitting the final block of text for his new book, Evolution Minutes, published by Quercus in October 2017 and available at the very reasonable price, just $9.99. Darren travelled to Birmingham for the SBPCA meeting of September where he presented a poster dedicated to reviewing the history of reviews pertaining to vertebrate paleontology, focusing in particular on the portrayal of fish history in the literature. A poster also displayed at 2017's TetZoocon, also attended by John, and held at the venue in London and featured numerous talks, the participation of around 160 people and substantial artwork and merchandise. November saw a significant personal achievement as Darren, working with fabled theropod dinosaur expert Andrea Cow, succeeded in finally submitting the gargantuan Eo Tyrannus monograph to an open access journal, while December saw him presenting work on British reptiles and amphibians at the Joint Scientific Meeting of Amphibian Reptile Conservation in the British Herpetological Society, and latterly at the 2017 Popularising Paleontology Workshop in London, where he spoke about the history of vertebrate paleontology as portrayed in textbooks, a meeting at which John also gave a <coughs> memorable talk on the history of art and the historical context of paleo art. After spending winter in the Tatra Mountains of far southern Poland, Darren returned in January 2017 to England to assist in the promotion of the London run of Dinosaurs in the World before embarking on completion of the second edition, a softback of the Natural History Museum book Dinosaurs, How They Lived and Evolved, co-authored with Dr. Paul Barrett and this time involving new cover art. All the while, Darren continued to edge towards completion of his life's work, the vertebrate fossil record, a.k.a the big book the latter part of 2017 and early part of 2018 being taken up entirely by birds and so dr nash finds himself leaping from life to life putting right what once went wrong and hoping each time in his next leap will be the leap home <laughs> great <clears throat> mashup there great mashup there we go um, once more correction go on i did something else in that period lies no i well you got it pretty much right uh i Illustrated the Quetzalco Atlas uh, paper. Two papers. Yeah. So, well, they're both in review now. Science. So, yeah. That Brilliant. was a big chunk. Um, so, yeah. 
Okay, well done. That's great. So, Built for uh, Health and Illustrated 2 papers. That's cool. Um, I, of course, I didn't mention all the technical papers I was involved in because there's just too many to talk about. But um, uh, so that, that's great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's so many I can't even remember. That is what is how I talk. Um <laughs> Part of I'm very excited to see this new research on Quetzalcoatlus. <clears throat> I'm, I'm actually not because I know exactly what it yeah. involves. But no, I'm, I'm kidding. It's it's part it's part of this grand developing uh, um, increased increasingly in depth understanding we have of Asdarkids, and uh, as has been discussed in recent work by myself, Mark Witten, and others. Um, yeah, they're, they're proving to be interestingly uh, diverse. But uh, Quetzalcoatlus, I think I'm allowed to say this, and this based entirely on what you've told me, is one of the boring ones, right? It's pretty. It's a pretty standard Asdarkid that does seem to conform to how we imagined them to look, right? Yeah, it's well, not, I guess because it's also, like, that's how we got to imagine them, right? Yeah. Quetzalcoatlus basically leaked all over the place. People sort of know what it is. You know, but you know, in some cases, there's, it turns out that the classic animal that everyone has had in the, as the exemplar of yeah. the group turns out. Oh my turns god, out. it's the weirdest one, and yeah. uh, that, that's not that that's not the case here. But uh, it's good no. stuff. And talking of as darkids, um, I, I mentioned obviously dinosaurs in the wild there, which um, uh, based here in the UK, it's a an interactive travelling exhibition that that did Birmingham and Manchester last year, and it's currently in London, and. Um, You've been to see it because I very kindly, thanks very much, got you invited to the celebrity evening event. So, yep. so what did you think of, of it? I thought it was great. The dinosaurs were really, really good. I mean, it was really interesting seeing, like, um, Darren Nash dinosaurs rendered like proper things, you know. That was really pretty cool. Yeah. So we should, should say... And really it's... interesting, like, little behaviours and stuff and little details, which is, which is nice. Yeah, so if it's not clear from you can't kind of piece it together from what John's saying, it's you basically there's a, we imagine we're in a parallel universe where time travel exists and you do travel back in time to a, a research base and you, you actually visit a research base, you go from like laboratory to laboratory to autopsy room to animal warehouse kind of area and you also see through windows through the magic of CG and three D, you see um like computer um graphics uh, you rent digitally rendered la- digitally rendered uh Maastrichtian dinosaurs in a landscape yeah. and not just not just dinosaurs there's there's as dark as well and uh, a mosasaur so <clears throat> yeah I- i'm pretty pleased with it uh yeah um and and the feedback's been good from uh, everyone who's seen it so if you're in london do uh come see dinosaurs in the wild it's there until the end of july but um it's at the greenwich peninsula not far from the o2 about a 15 minute walk from the o2 but hopefully it will be extended and we'll be there for longer and what happens after that i mean obviously you know people all around the world say well where does it where's it gonna you know come to come to the usa come to canada come to france come to south korea um it's like well you know it's not down to me but <laughs> I, I, I sure hope in the in the interest of my own employment I, I i sincerely hope that is what happens but just can't say at the moment yeah it was really good i i um so yeah you go through all the sort of the labs and stuff 
Um, and then the main event is you're standing in a, you get to stand in a room, sort of what, an octagonal room or something, um, with windows all the way around the sides, which are obviously actually screens. But you can wander around and choose what to look at, which is, uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. I like that. I could talk for, yeah, I'll talk for hours about this because there's so much. Uh, but, and I'll just say one last thing, which is that the screens, something that I wasn't obviously directly involved in, but one of the most interesting uh, things that happened during the whole project was the exponential improvement in screen technology that happened during the duration of the project. So when we started, the things that were happening with window-like screens, this switch from an LED-based system to an OLED system, don't ask me to explain it, I don't understand it very well, but this new technique of, you know, but actually, yeah, um, using screens as windows. Just I know what it went. is. Do you want me to tell you the difference? You, no, I don't, because you'll go off on a tangent, and we've got too much no, to do no, anyway. No, no, no. So. I'll tell you, because it, it's somewhat relevant. So yeah. LED-based screens are backlit, so they've basically got a light that shines through pixels, right, behind them, whereas o- o- OLEDs light themselves, which means that when they're off, they're completely black. Yeah. Uh, whereas an LED, because it's got light shining through it, black is never really properly black. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it lets yeah. you have like rich blacks, which is really helpful for giving an illusion of reality. Right. So that's that's OLEDs 101. I mean, everyone knows that. So I, I thought I thought you meant you were going to give us some actual information, but. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they reckon they reckon that if the if they opened dinosaurs in the wild like say two years in the future, the screen those screens at the moment are probably at a guess I would say probably like just over like one point two meters maximum width. They reckon, and that's apparently the maximum you can have them at now. Yeah. They reckon you know, give it a couple of years and you'll be able to have like you know giant sheets like four meters wide and stuff. So that was a really cool story, and that is integral to the uh, portrayal of uh, what what you see. And it, and it works because you know people are looking. I don't think you really spend your time thinking, ooh, what kind of crazy 3D tech am I looking at? I'm just looking at a flat screen. You don't. You do. You think you're looking at into the depth of a landscape. So. Um, but the way the animals are portrayed, the the stuff we've the stuff we thought about and portrayed as go soft tissues and display behavior and social behavior and stuff that John's mentioned, um, yeah, there's, there's 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 a few things that are up for debate or are just plain wrong, obviously. But um, by and large, it's a, it's a very modern view of dinosaurs that uh, brings in the all yesterdaysy stuff and the soft dinosaur revolution and everything we understand about. Uh, um, uh, yeah, soft tissues and behavior and whatnot. Uh, although uh, one, one one final thing, which of course is you just cannot you cannot portray the habitats correctly. You just can't. You have to compromise because you need a real landscape to do with like the lighting and the, the space you have to put your animals in. You can't create a digital landscape. That's just too expensive. So you have to settle for. So right. <laughs> we had we had two options. The Ryukyu Islands, uh, part of Japan, because they've got a weird mix of like temperate flora and tropical flora, and it's quite a dense, cluttered sort of uh, not quite rainforest, but but wet forests seasonal uh, habitat, which was kind of not a bad um, uh, proxy for the Hell Creek style flora, mm-hmm. or somewhere Western North America. And we just had to go for Western North America for budgetary reasons. And that was like a little bit too dry and a little bit too open, mm. really, 
to properly portray uh, Hell Creek because originally we wanted we were imagining literally you'd look out the window and you're looking into like a literally you'd have like like large trees and stuff not not huge trees there aren't huge trees in the flora but you know you'd actually be looking out through branches and stuff and, and we that just couldn't work for, for all kinds of reasons so uh, so this instead it's kind of a more open habitat but with well yeah you have to go and see it to find out what I'm talking about yeah <clears throat> I mean, okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, oh, uh, drinking game is being probably phased out because it's not a good idea to drink this early in the morning, and we've forgotten all the rules anyway. Um, we're also, let's say now, we are phasing out cash for questions. Uh, okay. I personally have never liked cash for questions, so thank you. That, that's not to say I don't appreciate. Screw you, guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate the fact that, that people have submitted cash for questions. And obviously, it's good that some people have actually helped us finance wise. But my thinking is that there's more than enough stuff to talk about. There's a crap ton of stuff to talk about that I think we should cover in the podcast. And then you have suddenly to spend 20 minutes discussing someone's pet theory on whatever the thing you know thing we're always coming. Right, so so we we have we have a backlog and if you've and if you've submitted a question and paid us money we promise to get through it eventually um we also need to basically ramp up the rate at which we're pushing out these podcasts because um this is the golden age of the podcast the golden age of radio as sam harris says and um yeah, uh, like now that John's finally got off his lazy backside, and um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, let's hopefully make this a regular thing. Uh, do do yeah. you want to say anything about the editing? Because it's the editing that's always the problem. Oh right, yeah, I, I hate editing the podcast. I hate editing. I've never liked editing. I had a job as an fa- editor once, and I absolutely hated it. Have you got any lackeys you can farm it out to? I don't know. Not not immediately here. I mean. I could try my cats, but... <laughs> so, so lazier saying, than I am. <laughs> so, if there is anyone who's uh, prepared to edit the podcast for us, preferably for free, well, you've got our email addresses. No, I'm kidding. That would be a really bad thing to do. But uh, That would be know. a bad thing to do. Um, yeah, I think the problem with cash for questions is that they were just taking up too much time. We got too many, and... Um, you know, it was getting to the point where every episode that all we did was cash for questions. And I don't want to say to people, you know, you can't ask a question unless you give us more than like 50 pounds or whatever. That doesn't feel right. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> talk, talk about this for the next hour. I'll give you 25p. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I, yeah, I, I agree. It was just, it was just, uh, yeah, derailing the, the, the theme of the podcast a little bit. Okay. Yeah, so, okay, we move on to the section of the show. So, essentially, that was news from the world of Darren and John, I guess. Um, news from the world of news. Oh. And after 62 episodes, we still don't have proper um, jingly things. But, um, so, well, there's... <laughs> do you want jingly things? I don't know. Yeah, I want, like, a proper news from the world of news dun, 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 kind of thing. Okay, can so I use you that? Get, yeah. <laughs> just use that. Just, just put some music on it. <laughs> and some reverb. <laughs> With a little sparkle sound at the end. 
It being eight months since our past previous episode, there's an infinite, not literally, but a near infinite amount of uh, relevant research to talk about. I literally don't know where to start. So I've deliberately chosen things that aren't uh, like because we both are in the world of Mesozoic megafauna. I think it's all too easy to say, oh, yeah, there's this new dinosaur, then there's this new dinosaur, then there was this new dinosaur, including birds in that, by the way, because there's like, you know, 17 papers on mesozoic birds appear every week at the moment. Mm. Oh, dear. <laughs> the, the latest in Antorna thing. Uh, thing. Uh, should, uh, I've said too much about that already. I don't want to say any more about that. But, um, uh, you, know, but you know what I'm talking about? The Raoul Martin artwork. Why do I even care about the artwork? So they publish right. a new... Look, see, now I'm talking about it. Yeah, now you're talk talking about it. about it. Don't talk about it. Right. I'll just say very briefly, so there's a couple of new papers that have appeared recently on baby and antornithines. There's the amber specimens, which are absolutely incredible, but there's also a new one that's not in amber. It's like a baby in an egg, and, and it's cool, and it uh, shows lots of interesting things about antornithines. Uh, mostly consistent with ideas about their precociality. But um, this this new one... It's an interesting paper, good stuff, but in it they included uh, a reconstruction done by an artist whose name I've already mentioned. I won't mention him again. And it's like, why did you even include that reconstruction? Because then a lot of people, like me, stupid people, talk about the artwork and don't talk about the science because the artwork is so bad. It's like so bad. It's like he got everything wrong. It's like, dude, have you looked at, have you read a single, look, I'll stop there, stop there. Like, just one example, he like put the hallux on the wrong side of the foot. You know that's how bad it is. Not exaggerating, um, but but like oh. that's that's what that's what happens when he do, when he doesn't use <laughs> reference material. Don't say anything. Don't say that. Don't say that. Um, shouldn't. But yeah, it's like a lot of us like it when there's a life reconstruction in a paper, but you almost shouldn't, shouldn't do it because people then end up talking about that and not talking about the science. And we should talk about the actual discovery itself, I feel. So, okay, so we're not going to talk about Mesozoic dinosaurs and pterosaurs. Uh, three things. So, um, do you like chameleons, John? No. Stupid little bastards with their stupid little eyes going all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that, be that as it may... Um, the, did you hear about this paper published uh, in uh, January this year? Proetzel et al. David Proetzel, which I'm probably mangling that, sorry, um, and colleagues, including uh, Mark Schertz, who I know works on Madagascan frogs, widespread bone-based fluorescence in chameleons. Right. So yeah. if you haven't if you haven't heard this, this is crazy. Um, a load of chameleons. Madagascan and African chameleons have got bony tubercles on the skull that are really close to the thin epidermis. And it turns out, well, it's, it's already known that bone fluoresces in UV light, all right? And in these chameleons, these bony tubercles on the skull are so close to the skin surface that the fluorescence of the bones is visible from the outside in the living animal. So when these animals are... Uh, to our eyes, obviously, you know, we can't see into the UV spectrum. If you shine a UV light on the live animals, you see these bony tubercles show up illuminated as, you know, sort of fluorescing in UV. And I presume, I'm a little bit hazy on some of this, not being a vision expert, but I presume that if you can see into the UV part of the spectrum, as of course many, perhaps all reptiles can, um, then these animals can actually see this ordinarily. So, 
So they they see these lines of tubercles on the skull, um, and also they see like the ribs and stuff, <clears throat> the thorax. They they see them fluorescing in the live animal. How crazy is that? Bone-based fluorescence that's is widespread in chameleons, and they reckon that it's a probably a sexually dimorphic um, signaling thing. So oh. I thought that's pretty cool, and. They're, they're saying that it's probably likely that it's widespread um, in like other iguanians and other squamates. So, so um, the sexually dimorphic, that's interesting. Do the um, – whichever sex has the – Males have more tubercles. So they have more tubercles. They don't – it's not that they have uh, – females have thicker skin there, for example, like – no, it's it's if you think you know some chameleons. The classic example is the Yemen chameleon, uh, Camellia calyptratus, the one with that like, really tall mm. cast. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the fact that, that there tends to be dimorphism in the uh, like the the massiveness and proportional size and gnarliness, to use the technical terms. The fact that there's that those differences in the skull. Yeah, the males have got more tubercles. So, and it's led at least some people to then wonder, like UV vision. We assume, based on its distribution on the cladogram, we assume it's fairly widespread across reptiles. It's present in birds, present in squamates. Um, could it have been present in like non-bird dinosaurs? You know, it's, there's some people wondering. You know, could it could it be widespread? I don't know if it. I don't know if it's worth going down that route at the moment, especially given that um, uh, for basic reasons to do with um, the mechanics of, well, for basic scaling reasons, thin, small animals can have really thin epidermis, and hmm. big animals generally can't for reasons of you know keeping the skin together that kind of stuff so i don't know whether it would work in like you know would there be bone based fluorescence in ceratopsian skulls that that sort of thing but that's that's fun to think about but um <clears throat> yeah you can expose bone can't you are there animals with exposed bone there are aren't there? there's a couple of weirdos yeah i mean okay so apart from deer antlers which are as we've discussed a long time ago are a very peculiar kind of bone apart from that there's um the uh, ungles that pierce the digital pads mm. in some of those the, the squeaker frogs the arthroleptid frogs and also there's the there's a bunch of salamanders that pierce their flanks with the sharp tips of their ribs oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think other than other than that, and uh, the the potto, which we've also discussed before, as in the primate, the potto, um, that's supposed to have protruding neural spines. Although there's some debate on that, but 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 this is about the bones being really close to a to the surface of the skin, and then there being a very thin epidermis. And you yeah. can understand there must be quite a few animals where that's plausible, where bones are really close to the skin and the skin itself is really thin. There isn't much dermis, but there is a very thin epidermis. So it could be more widespread, but who, yeah, this is a, a start. Um, and, it's, and this is like, this is like, this is a big surprise. I didn't see this coming. There was a, there's also a paper published last couple of years i've forgotten the date now i can't remember any of the details apart from about what the discovery itself was which was actually how chameleons uh change color it's just worth mentioning this because i don't think it's yet well known it's certainly it's not you know in the textbooks and stuff yet um i always learned that chameleons 
uh, undergo their color change in the same way that um, cephalopods do, which is they've got kind of chromatophore-style mobile blobs of melanin that move... Um, uh, how do you describe proximally to distally in the in the dermis? Sort of external. There's these mobile blobs that kind of you know contract and retract and come close to the skin surface and then mm. retract to the deeper into the epidermis or dermis. <clears throat> Turns out that's completely wrong, and the uh, chameleons actually have like a billion crystals embedded in the skin that uh, they control <laughs> and then these like change angle and bunch up tightly when they need to reflect a certain it's, it's just crazy so oh. yeah that, that, that's pretty cool check check that out Christ, crystals in the skin of comedians first time i read that i was like somebody has really misunderstood something here crystals controlling color changing chameleons but uh, no it is actually a thing hmm. it's like a lcd display <laughs> exactly <laughs> So, so that's the uh, the OLEDs of the chameleon. Uh, no, chameleon. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's that. There's always lots. The the world of squamates is fascinating and diverse. And still in the herpetological literature, A. Christopher Lapin et al. This was published in September 2017. Bite force in the horned frog with implications for giant extinct giant frogs. So it's well known that there's a bunch of different frog lineages that have evolved independently several different occasions several different frog groups because they some of them are members of the hyloid lineage some of them some, some of them are african members of the like ranoid lineage you got things like the so-called uh, pac-man frogs the pixie frogs uh the pac-man frogs same thing as the horn the horn frogs south american horn frogs they're they're close to toads and poison dart frogs and uh, tree frogs uh, whereas the African bullfrog, uh, famously big and wide-headed, is a is a member of like the Ranoid lineage. A um, lot of these animals, they've not only got big, gnarly, well-ossified heads and massively wide mouths, they've also got odontoids, giant tooth-like structures on the jaws, and they and it's well known they have like pretty powerful bites. But this is one of those things where you know people say that it's how oh, they got a really strong bite. They 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 bite in combat and they bite in self-defense. And occasionally you'll find anecdotes like, you know, they can bite a man's hand clean off. <laughs> no, they can, they can draw blood in a human hand, that sort of thing. But it's like, well, how strong is their bite? Or is that really true? Do they really have a, a super strong bite? And then the answer is, I don't know, because nobody's ever done any research on this ever until this paper. Because these authors, um, we know two of them, Susan Evans and Mark Jones, um, they... Uh, actually took bite force data from uh, living horned frogs, South American horned frogs, and, <laughs> and then they extrapolated it to Beelzebufo, which is this giant extinct Cretaceous, so-called hyperosified megafrog, how it was mm -hmm. first, first published, this big-ass frog from Madagascar, lived alongside you know dinosaurs like a, a belly sores and whatnot, and sauropods and such, and was, my, oh dear, uh, the size... I think it's it's incredibly it would be based on what they know it would be like an incredibly like you know wide bodied and not necessarily long frog it would also it would have proportionally short legs but it would I think the estimates are that it's going on for something like 60 centimeters long and and like 50 centimeters wide Beelzebufo is crazy so if 
if we can learn about the bite force of the living horned frog, how does this extrapolate to um, a, a much larger extinct animal, Beelzebufo? Bufo? And by the way, there's a controversy here as to whether Beelzebufo Bufo is related to horned frogs. That that's some people say yes, that it's a it's a Cretaceous member of that lineage, and other people say no, it's outside that that clade. But that's that's a, a different debate. Anyway, they found that the bite force in the living Ceratophrys, the, the living horned frog, is substantial, he says, without actually knowing the actual uh, bite force. Uh, okay, without reading the goddamn paper, I can't find it and I can't remember it. Yeah. But they do, they, they do helpfully say in the abstract that by scaling it up to a, a Beelzebufo-like animal, that it would have a bite force equivalent to that of like a large-size mammalian carnivore <laughs> of 500 to 2,200 newtons. So, <laughs> so a big frog with a bite force comparable to like a lion or something. <laughs> that's that's really cool. And uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's um, that's quite a lot of bite force. Yeah, I do wonder about the numbers. But uh, <laughs> it's a big frog. There's a huge amount of slop in bite force yeah. studies. So you'll find, for example, uh, again, let's try and keep this brief because you go off on a tangent here. But um, there's been a huge number of studies that have looked at bite force in Tyrannosaurus based on data in alligators. And the initial, there are, there, like I say, there are different studies. So. Listeners, don't judge me if I'm not mentioning the right studies here. But there were initial studies, you know, those by Ericsson and colleagues, which said that alligator bite force is like 15 to 18,000 newtons, and the Tyrannosaurus was, you know, exceeding that. But how much it was exceeding that, they were a bit vague on that. And more recently, you've had studies saying that the bite force for Tyrannosaurus could be like as much as 60,000 newtons. Um, it's kind of fun to throw these figures out, but it's always quite difficult to actually you know, know how to relate to them because the the best. Yeah. I've never the, understood bite forces. Very well. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend to be able to like provide a nice, tidy, concise explanation, but the, the most frequent comparison is people say that's equivalent to like having a 10 ton truck, you know, on your balancing on your foot, you know, that, <laughs> that, that kind of thing, which, uh, uh, those are the, those are the you're you're talking about literally like tons of pressure per square centimeter that kind of thing um and this is this is a big thing that people now go in for trying to estimate bite force strength in uh extinct animals not just things like tyrannosaurs but also fossil crocodilians of many kinds fossil sharks it's been done several times for megatooth sharks um this is the first time it's been done for frogs um but there's still a problem in that there is, as I've sort of implied, there is this area of slop as goes the uh, data we get from living animals. Has, uh, it's, it's difficult to know whether it's been sufficiently ground-truthed, as it were. Mm. Okay, yeah. so, so unless you want to say anything else, it's this, that, that's that. Move on from that. And the final thing is this Neanderthal artwork uh, paper which I don't have in front of me. Um, so Hoffman et al., 2018, published in Science, using um, a, a particular kind of, I think it's uranium-thorium dating. 
They showed, or they assert, I should say, that some ancient cave art from from three caves in Spain, La Pesiega, Matravieso, and Artales, and that's not pronounced at all correctly. Um, but it had an accent, it, so... You know. Yes, yeah, so, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the art, the hominin art in this in these caves dates to around about 64,000 years ago. Now, our species is uh, is thought to have um, gotten out of Africa around about 100,000 years ago, but not really gotten into Western Europe until 40 to 50,000 years ago. And there's, lot, and there's lots of reasons for thinking that, but this... So the, their dating of this art puts it at around about 15,000 years older than the time at which Homo sapiens is supposed to have gotten. I use the word gotten a lot these days because I've heard some people think it's a bad word to use. And I'm like, no, I use it all the time. I don't care what you think. <laughs> so you're using it <laughs> passively aggressive. I am. Yeah, I am. Great. Gotten. Humans. Our species gotten. <laughs> use, it, use it in the completely wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Because apparently, because people say, I, I use it because I've been criticised for using it. And they say, gotten, what kind of a word is that? So, well, I don't know, it's a word I use. <laughs> and then apparently You've they say, it's only, to it. so I've gotten used to it. It's like only an American thing. It's like, no, it's not. It was like actually an, an old English thing. So, um, anyway. Um, I'm old and way, I'm the, English and I use it. Exactly. I'm an old endemic um, <laughs> using old English. The... The cave art in these caves yeah. is, uh, uh, I'm not sure if I want to say interesting, but it's curious. There's a, there's a thing that looks like a ladder, and there's also a, a hand stencil, as in where the, the art maker literally applied their hand and you know, sort of blasted paint around it. So if this is from a Neanderthal, that is actually a Neanderthal hand stencil. This is not the only claim of... Um, uh, ancient European cave art being made by Neanderthals. There was a 2014 claim that some stuff in Gibraltar is uh, also made by Neanderthals. That art <laughs> basically involves the hashtag. <laughs> There's this series of like cross lines. It just looks like they were, you know, trying to tweet something. Um, so, and there's also um, th- th- even kind of uh, arguably more incredibly, there's there's painted seashells that have also just been reported that date to like 115,000 years ago. So like more than twice as old as the oldest art attributed to Homo sapiens. Uh, the oldest, uh, incidentally, this is a tangent, but the oldest artwork attributed to Homo sapiens is not from Europe anymore. It's from, and this again, this is old news if you keep up with this stuff, but it's from Indonesia. And uh, yeah, that dates to like 50,000 years ago. And curiously, do you know what animal it depicts? Indonesian cave art, the oldest, the oldest art attributed to Homo sapiens, features, I think it's Babarusa, Babarusa. So, so cave art from Indonesia, older than the the famous European stuff. So, what is the big obvious? Um, what do you call it when there's a thing that might cast doubt on that thing? What's the big like possible stumbling block mm. to all this? If they're if they're saying they're saying that oh my god this cave art is much older than we thought, it predates the oldest the the, the date at which Homo sapiens got into Europe. Therefore, it must be from Neanderthals. 
Okay, bear in mind there is already, by 2017, 2018, there's already an established line of thought where people are saying, could some various cave structures, like things like the arrangements of um, stalactites and also various bits of art and even statues and things, there's already this idea out there that some artwork might be generated by Neanderthals. What is the the stumbling block? The stumbling block is... How do you actually know this is made by Neanderthals? You're only basing it on the fact that it predates the date at which Homo sapiens supposedly got into Western Europe. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't have a problem in principle with the idea that Neanderthals did this. And it's sort of, like I say, consistent with other lines of evidence. But can we definitely exclude the possibility that Homo sapiens didn't have a... It's not a stretch to imagine that any given species was in a, any given region approximately fifteen thousand years earlier than we thought. That's nothing. It's like that's. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Especially when, okay, this segs back to stuff we've covered in a previous episode. That you remember that um, that stuff about that that mastodon butchery site in. Western North America, mm-hmm. if it is, if it is generated by hominins, which as we covered whenever we covered it, I think episode sixty is controversial. But the th- discoveries like that, and then there's also the fact that um, Homo sapiens fossils were discovered in uh, North Africa last year, which puts the origin of our species back possibly another hundred thousand years. <laughs> so when you throw in those things. It's like I don't know. I, 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 it's it's a difference between saying that yeah, this is a reasonable idea. It's not an it's not an unreasonable problem. I got no problem with the idea that Neanderthals did this. Neanderthals were doing this before Homo sapiens was doing it in the same region. But it's like you can't yet say that it's established and that it's impossible that Homo sapiens did this. Yeah, I would say. Man, my ignorance about this has made this such a non-story. I didn't realise there wasn't Neanderthal cave art or art of any sort. I just oh. thought there was. This is always this assumed is... there was. Oh, okay. Well, this is the this is the um, the great long-running dispute about the the, the culture um, of of Neanderthals. You know, how similar to us were they? Because you've got extremes extreme viewpoints and then you've got you know every possible gradation in between you got some people saying that they would they were really similar to us and they were possibly even you know manufacturing stitched clothing and they were you know like appreciating flowers and had cults and you know producing art you've got that side and then then you've got an extreme other view which is no they didn't they didn't have any of that stuff didn't have any you know um Oh, there's all these words for this stuff. <laughs> they didn't have any, you know, like permanent art or any way of even imagining concepts of art and stuff. And and they and they certainly weren't doing things. You know, they were they were you they were behaving more like other animals and using their their brawn and structure to withstand their environment more than we do. In fact, having read Jonathan Kingdon's Self-Made Man, I've, I've you know, I, I do, I'm really big on the idea that, that our use of technology is a, is a key 
key in everything about our evolution. That's a, that's a fascinating story. <clears throat> okay. Uh, we should stop there yes, on that. Yes, but I, yeah, mate, like, I don't see that that really necessarily tells us much about Neanderthals because they could be using technology as well. And just make, you know, so what? They they kind of are us anyway, right? Because they're in the gene pool. So uh, I meant to, I meant to touch on that as well. How does this relate to the? So under the biological species concept, as you've said before, uh, you know. At least some populations of Homo sapiens have Neanderthal genes in them today. So, um, yeah, the biological species concept: we are the same species. Species in air quotes. Yeah, yeah. and how much that, that tells that you means. about how they behaved and stuff. But I guess I've always sort of naturally assumed they're very, very similar to us. But that's just born out of mostly ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> so that's there you go. That's kind of okay. So this is this is a developing and ongoing story, and and we'll we'll, we'll definitely be uh, coming back to it. I feel so. So there you go. That is news from the world of news. As we say, there is a crap ton of other stuff, but we won't cover it now. Um, Alrighty. Yeah. What are we going to do now then? Cash well, for questions. For cash for questions. For not the last time, because we have so many cash for questions. Yeah. So you pick Summit, and and let's see how it goes. So there's some there's some I know we can't answer, or I can't answer. Okay, let's just do them in order then. Okay. So I thought we already did this first one from Luelli. Number one thirty. Uh, yeah. Pretty sure we didn't. Okay, let's do that. I would like you to ramble on about Kalakathias in on the Tet Zoo podcast. Okay. It says podcasts. Okay. Podcasts. Luelli, thank you for the question. Um, yeah, this is a long stand. Oh, God. <laughs> Submit in 2016. Okay, so calicathers are perizodactyls. They are part of the same group as the living horses, rhinos, and tapirs. And famously, calicathers have claws instead of hooves. And there aren't any fossils where the actual claws are preserved, but the un- underlying bony ungles are claw-like. Interestingly, they're often what's called fissured, which means that the, the ungle bone is actually kind of like forked or split. So they definitely have these big claws. There's a bunch of different groups of calicathers. So there's Eocene members that aren't particularly big. They're kind of like the size of other early paleogene perisodactyls as in like the size of a small tapir so like say 60 70 70 80 centimeters tall at the shoulder sort of you know smaller than the smallest pony kind of size and they're sort of nondescript calicathers they do have various boring features of the teeth that do identify them as calicathers when it comes down to tooth characters in hoof mammals oh my god it's tedious uh, tedious stuff it's like the meter paralophocone is larger than the ectoconid did it even form. referencing it is boring me darren stop <laughs> those aren't the right technical terms but uh, and then but then so you've got like a bunch of early like uh, nondescript forms but then you've got the skies and the calicotherians and which uh, are definitely present uh, from the oligocene uh, do lots of really interesting things and develop their most profound differences during the Miocene and then persist, certainly in the case of Calicotherians, into the Pleistocene. Calicotheres are pretty widely distributed. They, uh, Some of the oldest ones are from Europe and Asia, but they also were present throughout Africa and through North America as well. 
And um, Skyzer Therians are the sort of more classic kind of like big, robust horse-like forms. These were big animals, like shoulder heights of, I'm going to guess, around about two meters. They're really big. And um, Skyzer Therians don't have ridiculous proportions, as in the fore and hind limbs are approximately equal in length. And the skull is vaguely horse-like. Despite having claws, these animals clearly were um, high-fiber herbivores, like the majority of prosodactyls. And some skyzotherians have got like big, thick, dome-shaped skulls, which immediately implies that they're doing, you know, like head-banging or something, or using the the skull in display obvious analogy with dome skull dinosaurs pachycephalosaurs there has been some work done on what the inside of the um uh, dome was like our buddy matt wadel has actually uh, been involved in some of this research and i think i can't even remember if this has been published i'm doing all of this from memory by the way i haven't got any text mm, that's in front what of it's me. meant to be it's meant to be a ramble yeah god <laughs> um i seem to remember that the domes were hollow and looked super fragile so they probably weren't like sort of smashing heads together not regularly or maybe they were or maybe they <laughs> were know. just lightly to make a sort of a, a drumming sound right yeah so that's so that's skies ethereans but the more interesting ones are the calicotherians because these animals are among the most remarkable of fossil mammals certainly among the most remarkable of perisodactyls because the forelimbs are like twice as long as the hind limbs and the hands indicate that these animals were knuckle walkers. So if you can imagine an animal that's a member of the same group as horses, rhinos and tapirs, but is proportioned more like a gorilla <laughs> and knuckle walks and has got claws and is a herbivore, um, you know, what were these animals like? Uh, obviously, there are, you know, various famous reconstructions. I think most people will be thinking of the Mauricio Anton ones where they're imagined to have behave something like say ground sloths um and there's various other extinct mammal groups that could have done the same thing some of the giant lemurs and, and stuff where they probably sat on their like squat robust haunches and sort of reached up into foliage and you know, like, like literally pulled down branches with these big clawed digits um which is really interesting. And again, they're obviously, you know, high fiber herbivores. There's a, there's a few suggestions here and there, either in the older literature or in the literature where people haven't really done any research, you know, some of the cryptozoological literature, but they sort of imply they were herbivores. Oh, sorry, sorry, imply they were carnivores because mm, after yeah. all, they've got claws. But it's like, no, they're perissodactyls. That's really unlikely. And secondly, the anatomy of their teeth and so on clearly shows they were high fiber herbivores. Um, so, the knuckle walking. Yeah. This is really interesting. How does that happen? How does that evolve? Because in gorillas, you can see how it evolves. You know, they go through somewhat, maybe, you know, they're, they're arboreal or whatever. You come back down on the ground. You can do what you like with your hands. How did knuckle walking evolve in these things? Presumably, they were always quadrupeds. So... Okay, so I am a prisodactyl, yeah. and to start with, I'm walking on my ungles. I am unguli grade, mm -hmm. but then at some point, calicotheres become digitigrade. So now they're walking on the longer parts of the holes, the whole of their digits. Yeah. So you're. So this is a very good question, and there's no exposition of this whatsoever. Okay, this might be the, this might be the first time this has ever been discussed. Seriously. No way. There's, 
That's the first thing I thought, looking at them just now. Oh, come on. Yes, way. There's like a million questions you can think about with extinct animals when no one's ever looked at it. There's, a, there's like one But it's the most big... interesting thing about them. To you, not to mammals. what they ate or whatever. How did this evolve? We need, to, we need to get into the details of that protocone structure. What is the protocone exactly like and how does it differ from the metacone? These, instead, these are the key things. We've got something which is apparently... <laughs> I don't want to say impossible to evolve, but it's weird, really goddamn weird and hard. Right, okay. How did it happen? This is... Do you uh-huh. see that? Back large, to front. La- no. Large mammalian clawed herbivores, a comparative study. By? Um, I can just see Jerry Chalafu. Chalafu? Marguerite. Marguerite. It's by Marguerite Coombs. You were cutting it off. I couldn't see the whole thing. Okay. okay. This is this is this is the ultimate study on um, the all of the clawed ungulates. If you'll allow me to use that term, and uh, I've just been flicking through this. It's quite because it's quite a substantial thing. It's uh, ninety six pages. Uh, just been trying to find if she does go into an explanation as to how the knuckle walking uh, evolved, and uh, if it's in here, I haven't found it. She does figure the hand in the um there is a name there's a proper name for this this knuckle walking pose i can't remember what it is well i guess i guess it's just like hyperflex and it's not hyperflexion but uh, this flexed uh, position of the uh, um digits but what it looks like is what she's kind of imagining although i can't see it described is that okay so to go back to my explanation, I said that ancestrally you presume they're unguli grade. They walk on the tips of their digits. Yeah. But then the ones that are famous having the big claws, so like the well, okay, the both they've, they've all got big claws. But the, the the ones that we're most familiar with, the Skyzotherians, they've switched to digitigrade, where they're putting a lot of the digit on the ground. Yeah. Um, Skyzotherians in being knuckle walkers. Have they, I don't know, but this is what I'm guessing based on the look of the diagrams, have they actually gone from unguli grady to directly to then not putting the... This this must have evolved in step with the evolution of the claws because the claws are a novelty. The claws are not a primitive feature in this group, right? Presumably claws became bigger and sort of more important in Calicthias, like, you know, in the early members of the group. Is it that as they started to evolve claws, they stopped walking on them and they started walking on the the next phalanges, the next bones adjacent to the unguals? And then that's literally how they became. I don't, I don't think that works. Because once you start to evolve the claw, you can't really... What? Does the first animal just, like, imagine a horse or whatever... Just yeah. suddenly deciding to walk on its knuckle. Yeah. It just yeah. not don't buy that. Yeah. Um I think it has to be that they were just spending a lot of time sitting around, clawing at branches, and when they went back down, they had relatively um what's the word, uh flexible hands. And when they went yeah. back down they just started to choose to That's the only thing I can think of. It's not good though, and I would have thought that there would be some intermediates that it's very difficult to imagine how you might switch. So if they're specialised for knuckle walking, and I assume they are, they have to be full-time, as in obligate, knuckle walkers. But what you're talking about means that they would have gone through a phase 
where they are facultative knuckle walkers. They're not necessarily adapted for it. They can do it. But facultative knuckle walking is really hard because these joints are not designed, mm. air quotes there, they're not adapted for weight-bearing. And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like painful, maladaptive. You know, you can damage your joints and you can wear away your skin, all kinds of stuff like that, which is why we have ungles in the first place. You know, it's why they have big gnarly keratin covered hooves or claws on the tips of digits although if you want to see uh, an intermediate we can do both yeah, and indeed we, we do both you know when you see yeah. someone sort of scrabbling around on the ground that we we sometimes put the whole our whole hand down sometimes knuckles i mean i think we do it but then we're bipeds so yeah i can tell you to see then, how we do it yeah knuckle knuckle walking is very bad for the human hand sure it's a uh, it, it really hurts, and because uh, I because I went to a, a weird personal ex- personal project, but I indulged in knuckle walking for quite a long time, and really hurt my hands. <laughs> but that doesn't um, that doesn't matter because you know we do it right. Yeah, yeah, it's bad. We're not very well adapted to it, but we do it. So you can imagine a pathway that leads us to doing it, to adapting ourselves for it. Right. Mm. All we got to do is find a pathway for these animals to get from. <clears throat> their primitive primitive condition whatever it is to okay so check out the, the i'm showing john the proportions of one of yeah. these skies theory uh, sorry calicotherine calicotheres and can you imagine this animal not putting enough weight on its forelimbs such that it can uh, ex- exactly exactly how this would evolve you know the adaptive no, it's an advantage quadruped yeah yeah so this okay. So far as I know, uh, I haven't. I can't say. I've, I can't say I've checked any recent papers on calicotheres. Uh, I don't remember reading anything new about them apart from papers on isolated teeth <laughs> for the past like five years. But um, so far as I know, this is an an uninvestigated area of uh, perizodactyl evolution. Uh, so how they how they switched how this one group calicotheria and calicotheres switched to knuckle walking and became these weird gorilla-esque uh, super... I mean, you saw how long the forelimbs were there. These, the, the, and they do have you know, a perissodactyl with mobile, flexible fingers with claws. I mean, that's just a, a crazy concept. Mm. So, um, um... And just one final thing to say on calicotheres, which is that certainly in Africa, they def- there's, they're definitely present in the Pleistocene in Africa, and there are claims that there are... Um, now, what's the basis for this? I was going to say there's artwork, but I'm not sure there is. Uh, I would need to check that book by Carl Schuker. But there's there's claims that they may have persisted into the Holocene and even overlapped with um, modern people, and that the Nandi bear of the southern half of Africa is actually tales of living calicotheres. Uh, and um, oh, d- d- please don't imply that i'm taking this seriously i'm just saying other people have said it having read the nandy bear stories uh, so the nandy bear is this like large ferocious um really dangerous uh, i want to say predator but it's not necessarily always linked with the with eating of people it's, uh, it's supposed to kill people but not necessarily eat them it's supposed to be this big scary kind of bear-like monster like huge you know like two meters tall at the shoulder and it's been suggested a few occasions ah oh, this sounds like a description of a living calico there mm-hmm. and it's like well it kind of doesn't because the description is so vague it's just it's just some big generic clawed monster 
this is a big problem, of course, with so many cryptozoological stories. They don't really describe anything. They just they just references to an amorphous, big, scary creature of the kind that you know. Yeah. Um, well, let's go just... find a prehistoric animal that exactly. can try and exactly. ma- we can yeah. try and match this to. Yeah. So that's that's in there, and it's taken seriously enough that that even, uh, for example, Savage and Long's uh, famous Mammal Evolution book, uh, one of the few you know guides to the whole of the history of fossil mammals you know they they mention it in there they say "Ooh, could the could calicothea survive into the modern day and be the explanation for uh the nandy bear not that either of them spoke in that fashion but okay i right. think that's reasonable potted summary of calicothea <laughs> yeah okay next question from joseph corley due to a plethora of extraordinary finds a lot over the decades, we seem to have a much more complete picture of dinosaur show- social life than ever before. What is the most convincing evidence of social behaviour found within the pterosaur fossil record? Would they have been colony nesters, for example, or would some of the smaller species have flown in enormous murmuration-like flocks like starlings do today? Uh, well, um, yeah, I, w- w- well, what do you want to say on this? I mean, I can think immediately of a few things. Um, no, you go ahead. Okay. Okay. So first of all, I would say that the fact that, like some dinosaur groups, the fact that um, pterosaurs were clearly indulging in lots of social signalling. So the fact that we've got like elaborate the crests of all the, all these varieties of crests that evolved several different times, different lineages. That's a strong indication that these animals are spending a lot of time with other members of their species because they're sending visual signals to one another. That's a, that's a clear indication of social animals. They're not living alone. Now, that's, that's a really, really vague argument, but I think it counts for something. But more importantly, the fact that we have now discovered uh, several species belonging to several different lineages, um, where you've got like huge uh, sort of nesting grounds consisting of clearly hundreds of individuals. You've got um, like large numbers of adults preserved together with eggs and um, even embryos in the eggs. Uh, The most recently discovered of these sites is the Hamipterus one from uh, Lower Cretaceous China. That there's 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 a there's preservation of a colony of like literally literally hundreds of these things, uh, hundreds of hemipterous individuals uh, together. Hemipterus is a, a long snouted toothed pterosaur, probably uh, a member of the Ornithochiroid lineage, so not a million miles away from Ornithochiroid and Tyrannodon, that kind of animal. And and that's not the only one. There's also Tapajarids that have been found in colonies. There's lot there's large enough numbers of Tyrannodon uh, specimens from the. Uh, Nibrara chalk from the, the that would have been living and nesting alongside the seaway that cut North America in half during the Cretaceous. There's and there's a few others as well. There's enough pterosaur colonies for you to think that these animals really were um, nesting and associating in huge groups, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I think that establishes pretty clearly that they were group living, yeah, c- c- colonial nesters exactly what joe is getting at in his question um as for whether they would have flown in enormous murmuration like flocks well obviously that is something that we can only speculate about and um the murmuration thing so murmurations these groups of like hundreds or even thousands or even tens of thousands of starlings and there are other birds that do it as well that move in these coordinated sort of sweeping flocks spectacular thing to see 
Um, no idea whether they would have done that sort of thing. But these aren't particularly small animals. Even Hemipterus uh, has a wingspan of, oh, I'm going to guess around about two and a half, three meters, something yeah. like that. Um, I think it's unlikely that they would have. Who knows? Frankly, who knows? But I think it's unlikely that you should imagine them moving in uh, coordinated flocks like that. You but, should imagine but, but, them. But hang on. Excuse my ignorance. Coordinated flocks, are they? Or is it just flocks of certain sizes? Because fish behave like this too. When you get a big enough group re- uh, that have simple reactions to certain stimuli, they get these big patterns happening. It's not that all the birds are deliberately trying to, you know, make a pattern. They're have just reacting watched- to what's around them, right? Have you watched Darling Murmurations? Yeah. Because they're not they're not randomly responding to like a nearby predator or they're, they're I, I don't know what the nobody knows what the function they're, is. They're but responding to the birds immediately around them, which is why you get waves of yeah, stuff. No doubt. Right? Yeah. No, yeah. Well I yeah. I think it's I think it's fine to describe that as coordinated movement. whatever the ultimate cause of that is, they are moving and they're moving together. Like yes, one bird is the one bird is responding to the birds that are surrounding it, which in turn is surrounding to the birds in front and around around it. But they are moving together and they do form these giant sweeping shapes. So I think that is what he's getting at. Should sure, we yeah, imagine? Yeah, but I'm just, I guess what yeah. I'm saying is that you don't have to have any particular theory about intelligence or anything like this. It's just it's one of these uh, things that happens with very large. Yeah, groups. I. I, I um yeah i well um, yes and no i mean you have lots of animals that form large aggregations but don't then indulge in giant sort of sweeping complex shape things like fish shoals can be you know literally millions of individuals and they form in complex shapes because they're responding to like a nearby predator or you know they're 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 swimming over the topography of the seabed or whatever but they don't go into an open space and then all go left and all go right and all go up and all go down which is well they don't do it for no reason is what you're saying whereas starlings seem to do it for no reason yes yes and so the the reason i was talking about the size the size of the animals is that um, I could be completely wrong here, but I sort of think that the small size of animals like starlings and some of the other birds that do this is partly contingent on the on the fact that they they've got a certain their size confers a certain maneuverability and ability to turn within like a small space. If you're a high aspect ratio two meter wingspan animal and there's a hundred of you in a flock, are you also going to be turning and twisting and ducking and diving? And I don't know. I just automatically think that's see that's harder to visualize yeah i'm not really sure about the reasoning i agree that it seems harder but i'm not really sure what the justification is because it's just well everything would be bigger right yeah, but it's lit but it's literally harder to twist and turn and you know sure it is it'd like, be slower and bigger but it's, well yeah but yeah there's no yeah, reason to well, think that well i can't think of a good reason why it wouldn't well, be like, possible but well well, but well, I can. I mean, surely it's like starlings are high wing loading, low aspect ratio, and these pterosaurs are the absolute opposite of that. The absolute opposite. Yeah. So, and so there's there's that, and there's also analogy. It's like, are these pterosaurs that we're talking about? I think it's reasonable to imagine they could well, if you were there and you looked up at the sky, there could well have been thousands of them in the sky. Whether they would have like formed, you know, coordinated mega flocks like things like starlings, yeah, we just don't know. But even if you imagine that there is a group of them moving in the same direction, what's the best analogy for them? It strikes me, 
This is intuitive. It's unashamedly intuitive. But I think these animals, these pterosaurs, are more like, you know, seabirds or waterbirds, like gulls, frigates, um, albatrosses, petrels. Those animals all form flocks. All yep. of them for, form flocks. But they don't form these starling-style, murmurating, coordinated flocks. Yeah, they're not... So. I guess the thing is we got a bit hung up on size, but I think it's also got to do with lifestyle and yeah, as you say, aspect ratio and things like this. You know, they're not, they're not, these pterosaurs, especially, well, a lot of these pterosaurs are not, um, evolved for maneuverability. They're, yeah, they're not particularly maneuverable flyers. Although I'm sure some pterosaurs were. Yeah. Um, who really knows? very difficult to say this because we don't even understand the birds all that well so what's the chances we're, of finding out about things where we don't even know the aspect ratio of the wings yeah. right? we're, we're getting there it's improving all the time but it but it yeah. is interesting that correct me if i'm wrong here but um uh the pterosaurs don't seem so far as we know they don't seem to have gone in for they certainly haven't gone in for high wing loading which means that a given area of wing space supports a large amount of weight. It's like a given amount of wing space supports a low amount of weight because overall they're relatively light for the relative to the well, size of wings. Yeah, that's debatable because uh, we don't know the aspect ratio of a lot of pterosaur wings. Tell so, me a pterosaur that you think had high wing loading. Well, is there anything approaching a starling or a duck? But uh, I. Th- you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think albatrosses have relatively high wing loading. Not so, compared to pterosaurs. What? Not compared to pterosaurs. No, albatrosses have high wing loading for a bird because oh, their wings are so narrow. So if you've got some, you know, so some pteranodontids or ornithochirids, if they had super narrow wings, then they could have a high wing loading. So we don't know, and that's the point. We don't know. We don't know how deep their wings were. My for most of okay, this man, right? My my point in bringing that up is that okay, yes, albatrosses have, let's say, albatrosses have a relatively high wing loading. Off the top of my head, I don't know what it is, but that is still outside the range of birds that we ordinarily describe as having a high wing loading, like game birds, gallinaceous birds, well, yeah, and short, short wings. High yeah. wing loading so, is for so, okay, no, so my, burst flying and maneuverability. We don't exactly. have pterosaurs like that. That, 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 that. And that that right there is my exact point. So yeah. far as we can tell, it's interesting that pterosaurs didn't go in for that, nor did they go in for low aspects. Like So relatively, I'm using these terms for other people who don't know them, for broad, short wings. They don't seem to have gone in for that. They don't seem to have gone in for high wing loading. They don't seem to have gone in for low aspect wings so far as we know at the moment which is interesting if they did go in for that if there were kind of like you know waterfowl like duck like or game bird like or even sparrow hawk like um pterosaurs you would perhaps predict that they would be the pterosaurs that we were among the most preservable and best known pterosaurs maybe i mean that's I suppose, I suppose that's arguable because they could be animals of deep forest that don't show up in the fossil record at all. But you'd sort of <laughs> expect, that, yeah, if they were relatively robust. That, um, 
Yeah, so yeah. I, I, pterosaurs. I don't, I don't, yeah, I know. I agree. Pterosaurs don't seem to have gone yeah. in for this sort of thing. So I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to downplay the, the the what pterosaurs were doing. It's it's becoming more and more obvious due to the, the work of you know many of our colleagues and ourselves that it's becoming more and more obvious that pterosaurs were doing lots more. They weren't all albatrosses. They weren't all gull analogs, as was sort of you know ad, you know promoted a couple of decades ago. They were yeah. doing lots more. But it's still interesting. There's a few areas they didn't really go in for so far as we know and they didn't there aren't starling style um or game bird style or duck style um pterosaurs and this would have some impact on you know what they would look like and how they would behave in flight and stuff so um yeah pterosaurs generally have long big wings that's just what they look like even the ones that apparently are pretty weird like a neuronated still have long big wings yeah yeah. So, any other pterosaur behaviour you want to mention? Um, well, there's well, without going off on a tangent, I honestly think we've pretty much covered the key points of what Joe is uh, asking about there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, don't, don't think we've got anything else in particular. Uh, no. Um. Okay. Let's. Do you want to do another one? All right. This one's pretty short. Yeah. Oh dear. Sorry, I'm going to mispronounce your name. Madhu Rao? Is that how you'd say that, Darren? That is how I would say her name, yes. Okay. Do you have a recognition? <laughs> recognition. <laughs> recognition. <laughs> <laughs> a recommendation for a credible paleo marine reptile book. Now, this is really easy to answer. <clears throat> no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, this is a big problem. Uh, thanks for the question. Madhu's been asking about this for a long time. Um, uh, yeah, there, there's this is a big problem, and it's weird. And, uh, okay, you're a book publisher, and you publish 100 books on dinosaurs every year, and you've even published books on, like, birds, fossil birds, uh, and... Uh, which are, of course, a group of dinosaurs, but you know what I mean. And also, you've published one or two books on pterosaurs, but you want to put someone ask you, hey, I want to publish a book on marine reptiles. Pah, get out! Out! <laughs> Not interested. Well, that's what's happened so far. That um, there, and having tried, oh, well, oh, well, okay, I tried myself to publish a big book on mesozoic marine reptiles, got to the stage, as has happened, those of you who like are familiar with my you know, history of writing books and stuff, might have heard me say this stuff before, but there's a huge number of books. When I say huge, I mean probably about five. But there's a number of books that I've been involved in that have gotten really quite far down the road and then just haven't made it. This, this seems to be quite a common thing in my experience. And uh, I got pretty far with a Mesoite Moon Reptile book. And publishers may – and this is, of course, if you're going for mainstream publishers, if you're in the model of trying to make money from a book rather than just putting it out there and hoping for the best that people will buy it. Sadly, I have to somehow try and get earnings for my books up front. That's literally how I have to make a living. Um, silly old me. <laughs> it would be so different if I was wealthy. Jesus. Um Imagine all you could do if you didn't have to work for a living. Christ. Uh, um, tangent. Tangent. So, yeah, um, yeah, publishers become worried that a book devoted to, say, ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, mosasaurs, and the Triassic weirdos, they become concerned that it's just too niche. And as soon as people see this isn't dinosaurs, they just won't buy it. So there's this concern that it's not commercially viable. So it, it, it my efforts 
this book didn't work for that reason. I know of another book that was being prepared by the late, great Arthur Cruikshank and others, and which was also on Museum and Reptiles, and it was going to be part of that series published by Salamander. So Salamander in the 1980s published the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs by David Norman, which was hugely successful and saw several later editions. One of the best-selling dinosaur books of all time, believe it or not. That's why John Civic is so popular and loved. <laughs> and off the back of that, they did the Pterosaur one by Peter Vellenhofer. And do you know what happened to that? commercial nosedive splat you know it didn't sell at all because pterosaurs this isn't tyrannosaurus i want my money back um before they realized how this is the story i heard (laughs) it may not be fully accurate but before they realized how badly the pterosaur one was doing they got to work on the marine reptile one and uh, it ultimately failed so that's another story of marine reptile books failing i still think it could be done if it was done right so now out of reach on a distant bookshelf from here i can see Despite what I've just said, I can see the several books that have been published on Mesozoic Moon Reptiles. But I'm thinking, in view of Madhu's comment, do you have a recommendation for a credible blah, 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 blah? It's like, yeah, none of them are that good. That's the problem. So Michael Benton's The Reign of the Reptiles, which is now very much out of print, published by Kingfisher, around about 1990. It's pretty good. And it's on the whole history of fossil reptiles. Also includes synapsids. So stem mammals. Um, And it's got a fairly decent section on marine reptiles. So the reign of the reptiles, get that if you can find it cheap on Amazon or your other uh, digital retailers. Um, There's uh, Sea Monsters done by Nigel Marvin and Jasper James, which was done to accompany the Swimming with Sea Monsters BBC series, which is one of those follow-ups to the Walking With series. And meh, it's okay, but it's got too much kind of fiction in it. But then there's also um, there's a couple of like small books. There's like a uh, which I don't have to hand, so it's not even worth talking about them. I can't remember their titles. But of course, I should mention Richard Ellis's um, uh, Marine Reptile One, uh, and I, because I can't see it, I can't remember the title. Do I sound funny because I'm turned away from the computer? Or doesn't it matter? Doesn't matter. You've got a microphone attached to your head. Oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I kept this book I kept this book within reach for months Sea Dragons yeah, sea Predators dragons. of the Prehistoric Oceans yeah so that is currently the best offering on Mesozoic Marine Reptiles and I helped Richard with this I was sent the um, the, the, the text and uh, went through it and made like a hundred pages of recommendations richard ellis for those of you who don't know very respected um author and artist who uh, made a name for himself by publishing really good books on cetaceans and sharks and then he kind of ran out of those in the 1990s and then he he did a really good book uh called the search for the giant squid he did uh, another one on cephalopods uh and then ooh, i don't know late have you got a date for that Sea Dragons book, late 90s, early 2000s? Uh, 2003. There you go, 2003, yeah. Um, so I know it well, having been a uh, sort of consultant for it. And I, I like I like Richard Ellis a lot, uh, and I don't want to be you know harsh, but I, I just don't think the book is that great. It's, it's kind of like his – he does go sort of group by group through them, but – uh, and, and if you if you can find a cheap one, I would say I'd say it's worth getting. But um, 
it, it just doesn't tell the story for me. And I, I kind of why why do I say that? I, th- I think because what happens is he finds. Uh, let's say he covers ichthyosaurs, for example. There's a whole chapter on ichthyosaurs. He'll start with Mary Anning, as everybody does. Not saying anything wrong with Mary Anning, but it's like, yeah, come on. There's other things in there as well. Um, then he'll, you know, say, yeah, story of Mary Anning. She found this story of ichthyosaurus, and then they found the ones in Germany, and um, you know, Holtzmarden's Denopterygius, and there's a couple of other interesting ichthyosaur stories. Shonisaurus in Nevada. And Simbaspondylus from um, Nevada as well. Um, Alphamosaurus, the Oxford clay, sort of really big eyes. Uh, Leoski Matani and colleagues did that work on, you know, how good its vision was. And that's kind of it, right? So that's so okay. That that's not literally what the chapter says, but it's like that. It's kind of like it's three or four basic stories. And my problem. Uh, this, and this sounds very critical, so I feel bad for saying this. I feel very dirty. But my problem with this kind of book, and this is really common in books on uh, animals, is that it's like, yeah, huh, the, those are interesting stories, but those are the exact same stories that I've heard in literally every other single book on this subject. It's like those are the only things anyone ever talks about. Mary Anning, Ichthyosaurus, Holtzmarden, Germany, Stenopterygius, the spe- specimen's got a baby coming out of it. Shonisaurus was really big, comes from Nevada, mm. early in State National Park in Nevada, and Ophthalmosaurus got really big eyes and could see in the dark, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, that's great, but yeah, I, I, that, that is, that's Ichthyosaurus 101. And maybe if you, okay, there's a time and a place for that. If you want Ichthyosaurus 101, then hey, this is the book for you. But if you actually want uh, in-depth, you know, some stuff on all those crazy triassic chinese ichthyosaurs and the obscure kinds and stuff yeah am i making any kind of sense or am i just standing yeah i think what you what comes across when you talk about this it sounds a bit funny because you're like well i've heard it and everyone's thinking well of course you've heard it darren books are not written so that they're new to darren i mean that's not really going to be the thing but i think i think what you are saying is that things get repeated so much that just about everyone's familiar with a lot of these things and even if they're not they're so well trodden that what's the point right and there's other interesting things to be brought out that just people aren't because they just stick to this story that's over and over and over and over again dinosaurs got stuck in that for a while and i think that's lessening now that people are like oh there's all these weird interesting things popping up all over the place let's talk about some new stuff right and the old story just doesn't work very well um yeah i think yeah i think that's what she's saying it's just Mm. it's it's detracting from what could be really interesting you're not paying attention to other interesting things that might be more Mm. interesting than the the well-trodden things uh, but then again, this this book's kind of old now as well, right? Just like it sounds like all the stuff is quite old, right? There's probably been well, quite a lot of discovery yeah. since then, and quite a lot of new thinking. I'm guessing that 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 is that is definitely true. But <laughs> even, in <clears throat> even in 2003, mm. with respect, he was talking about stuff that's like this book could have been written in 1986. Yeah, literally, yeah. it's like there's there's nothing in here that's new. Mm. So I was, I'm afraid as much as I like Richard Ellis and I totally rate all of the other stuff. Okay. If I'm giving a negative review on this book, go out and buy all his other books to compensate for it. Cause they more than make up for it. I, I just, I didn't rate it that much. And also one other thing, the artwork in it is, is uh, subpar. I 
his drawings of uh, mesotomy and reptiles, I was like, seriously? As the same feeling as when I oh go back to John Civic again <laughs> when I first opened like Vellenhover's Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs, expecting sexy new pterosaur reconstructions, and it was John Civic stuff that could have been done in 1955. With all due respect to John Civic, it was like a massive sense of disappointment. <laughs> and, and I had the same for this book. It was like, these are really old school mesozoic marine reptiles. This, uh, this is one look for them, but it's not the look that we probably think is... Um... Yeah, I'm just looking at the um, preview on Amazon here. I quite like the style, sort of like that stippling thing. But yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's nice. Mm. They're nice drawings, the ones I can see. But yeah, I see what. Okay. You're... Yes. So, okay. so just to yeah, just to wrap up there, there there is a there is a problem. So, Madhu, I hope that's in some way helpful. There is a problem. There is no uh, good popular book. I mean, just one last thing. There is a multi-author technical volume, uh, Callaway and Masa- uh, Callaway and Nichols, called Ancient Marine Reptiles, which is uh, multi-authored technical chapters. Uh, but it tends to be quite expensive, as in like sort of, I don't know, seventy dollars expensive. It's like fifty pounds in the UK expensive. And uh, if you really like marine reptiles, you sort of have to have to get it. Look at that. So have you ever seen this mm. William Stout leaping mosasaur thing? I have, on yes. the <clears throat> Yeah. So there you go. That's the end of that chapter. That's the end of that chapter. Okay, so we, I think we have to move on to popular tat now. Good, yeah. I mean, Popular uh, yes. tat. So, it being eight months yeah. since the previous one, there is a crap ton of, I don't know, movies and TV shows and things that are either completely irrelevant to the Tet's universe or in some way remotely connected to it that, like... I think we should do this in the same way that we do. We just did the news from the world of news. You sort of touch on these things, say a few things about them. You don't spend half an hour discussing them. And, oh, dear, oh dear I don't know any of the details about them anyway. So, so yeah, okay, and we'll start with something yeah. that's not on the list. I mentioned it. So, Star Wars The Last Jedi. Yeah, I, I, I don't agree. I think that people like our longer discussions of things. Well, and I think with Star Wars, we should probably give it a longer discussion. We did with all the other ones. Okay. Well, we can come. We can come back. We to should them come if, back to that because there's because there's like because you want to mention a whole us. bunch of television shows for some reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got particular things to say about these things? Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, should so, we start with? So, the Last Jedi. I think we should actually talk about a little bit. Maybe we should like Although devote I'd special. I probably have to see it again to talk about it because, frankly, I've forgotten most of it. Well, it's let's been just like say two months. So it has. So, brief, brief thoughts. I mean, did you like it? Uh yeah. I Not that fine. that counts for anything. <laughs> no, I yeah, I I didn't enjoy it as much as the um, what was the the previous Force Awakens? The Force Awakens. Um, mm-hmm. but I didn't think it was bad. I just didn't think it was mm. as good. And also the spoiler killing oh, yeah, the ba- killing the baddie. What? Don't do that. We'd only just met him. You've got to build a baddie up. You can't just like Oh here he is, he's dead. It's mm. mm. very weird. Yeah. <clears throat> well he did have I, a I'm stupid name. Maybe the... they realised that and had to kill him because of his stupid name. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm interested in the whole meta of this film, given that it's been so incredibly, uh, I want to say divisive. Is that the right word? Basically really like polar, total polar opposites in terms of the reaction to it. Like, there's a bunch of people that love it. I, I liked it enough to I've seen it twice in the cinema. I don't want to see it again. I, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Um, and my friends and family who I saw it with really liked it as well. But then on the this the the conversation about the film has mostly been about these haters who really really hate it and hate it so much. You know they want the director. Uh, I've forgotten his name. They want him to commit ritual suicide. Mm. They want all copies to be destroyed. They want it to be stricken from the canon. Mm. And they don't want it to be... It's not even a Star Wars film. It's that bad. And it's like... <laughs> uh, uh, I, it, could could there possibly be some other uh, factor contributing to your dislike of the film? For example, are you a, like a rampant racist or sexist? Because yeah. that's, that's clearly clearly where it's coming from which yeah the that the, there's a whole hornet's nest of issues there um yeah um oh god i think we just need to stop responding to these people i i agree i agree i don't i shouldn't shouldn't even have mentioned that but but that was the biggest thing that i think was the what the i discussion. yeah what i find really odd about the this feels like a squarely middling star wars film to me yeah it's clearly not the best. It's not the second best. But it's nowhere near the worst. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I like the fact, I like the argument, which I've heard a couple of times, that the fact that it is so incredibly divisive. Is that the right word? Am yeah. I using the right word? Divisive? Yeah. yeah. Um, Polarising is another word you could use. But yeah. yeah, that that inspires some people to see it more than once it's like did i really hate it or did i really like it or i'm in the middle i'll just go and check again because there are some bits of it that i like and there are some bits of it that i don't like and so a lot of people complained about the uh casino bit the planet called Cant- canto bite i believe uh, yeah. um and and that just didn't feel star wars it's like i didn't think that i literally don't go into I, i've discovered and i've come to this epiphany after actually after watching blade runner 2049 which we might talk about in a minute but um I've decided there are two ways of watching a film. There's visceral film watching and there's cerebral film watching. And I'm very much a visceral film watcher. I'm like, ah, oh, pretty light. Oh, oh, teddy bear. Oh, pretty light. Oh, another reference. Oh, this is great. And then you leave going, yeah, that was the best film ever. Right? There's other people going, hmm. Now, that character is completely pointless. Why are they even in the film? This whole scene, redundant, chop it out, reduce the film by 20 minutes. This ending, oh, it's hollow, oh dear. What happened to that? Hey, what about that What about that massive loophole? You could drive a bus through that, right? I don't watch films like that. I go away afterwards and think, wait a minute, that was a piece of crap, it didn't make sense. But as a, as a, so I honestly think, I think that is a thing, and I'm embarrassed. Actually, I don't give a crap anymore, but I'm kind of embarrassed that I watch a film, and then afterwards people say, so you didn't. It didn't bother you that there. <laughs> it didn't bother you that I don't know. Whatever. It didn't bother you that. Um, can't think of a specific example. Okay. Didn't bother you there wasn't a single woman in that film. What women? Because <laughs> I forgot about them. <laughs> I I think there's, that you have to be. You have to have a brain <laughs> to be able to watch a film and come away with intelligent 
observations, and I just don't. That's just not how I watch films. Uh, so, I don't think I I, I, I... I don't watch them, like, with my big brain hat on, right? <laughs> it's just, if something, like a big, just red flag science-y type things in science fiction films bother me, and <laughs> plot holes that I notice bother me. And I don't notice that many plot holes. That, films are absolutely full of plot holes, and I don't mm. notice them all. But when I do, and I feel like it was completely unnecessary, it starts to bother me, and it takes me out of the film. It's a suspension of disbelief, and films sometimes fail me in that respect, and that's when I really start to hate them. Because <laughs> I can't forgive their other things, because I've... Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't you didn't feel this way during The Last Jedi, then? Uh, there were... There was a couple of things, but I think we should say that until the thing that I thought, well, that was a bit stupid, wasn't it? Why didn't they just do this? But, you know, no, I didn't feel like that. I enjoyed the film. I, I sat there, yeah. the whole thing. Ooh, look at the pretty lights. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. I, and I, it I felt like a Star Wars film. I don't get that whole bloody wasn't Star Wars thing. No. Yeah. And no, that's what I, Disney's I, got right. These ones do feel like Star Wars films, unlike the prequels, which don't. I agree. I, I, did, um, I didn't watch the canto bite scene for example and think this doesn't feel like Star Wars to me this is something oh. I, I just never thought that I just thought whatever they're going to canto bite I don't know the structure of the Star Wars universe all the nitty gritty I haven't drilled down into all the details of the and uh, if you do people the canon, but... you're doing it wrong <laughs> I swear it wrong. it's empty and it's completely hollow and contradictory mm-hmm. You can I, I, you can polish that turd all you like. You can have all the nerds <laughs> trying to think of all the little excuses, but it doesn't I, make sense. It's hollow. Yes, I liked I liked so much of it that I found it a rewarding experience. Even though I came away, I came out of it thinking, "Wait a minute, mm. <laughs> wait a minute." So I tell you an interesting. I, I consider this a major spoiler on my own thinking of the structure of the Star Wars universe, and I'll see if I can explain this in the right way, but I've decided that in the Star Wars universe, uh, you know how, in order to, this this idea is encountered in fiction quite frequently, that in order to, air quotes, feel alive, or to experience living, people from, that live our lifestyle, boring domesticate lifestyles, they'll go out into the woods and like, bite a deer to death without any weapons or they'll climb a mountain and nearly die. You know, that's quite a common idea in fiction, the idea that in order to feel alive, people need to go out and, you know, live in some sort of, you know. Well, I've concluded that in the Star Wars universe, people do this because basically they, they don't actually go out and like bite other animals to death. But I mean, as far as I know, um, they have... There's so it's a high tech world where there's devi- there's machines, droids, artificial intelligences, presumably that can do everything, absolutely everything. We see that there's you know there's there's droids that control. Like for example, now it's canon that the things on Tatooine are moisture evaporators. You know, there's there's, there's like d- things collecting moisture from the air to grow whatever the bloody are they meant to be growing. They're meant to be growing crops. I don't see many crops on Tatooine. But um, there's, I thought they were actually farming water. Farming water. Yeah, uh, it's condensers. So they were literally con- just out there condensing moisture out of the air. Uh, 
So in that case, in that case, this becomes a particularly bad example because who gives a crap about that? But like, you know, there's droids for everything. There's like a billion droids, but there's still it still requires if you want to drive a ship into another ship at light speed, you require a pilot <laughs> sat at that ship. So, 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 so now we're talking about it. Are we just going to talk about it? Let's just talk yeah, about yeah. it. Okay. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe we've, we we've already we know we already have. So let's just do it. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. That's the that's one thing that really bothered me. They're like, oh, you're sacrificing this character because you wanted to sacrifice this character and you've got yeah. the flimsiest, <laughs> dumbest possible excuse for it, right? You don't have an autopilot button. Yeah. <laughs> or, or a droid yeah. that can die. <laughs> so that's why I'm saying I've decided that they deliberately have chosen to live a life where I could give this job to a droid, but I'm not going to. I'm going to die <laughs> because that's a more dramatic, noble death. Because yeah. otherwise... It's, or, it's like, yeah, yeah. So they're deliberately being sort of romantic warriors. Yeah. yeah. That could make sense. Or that droids are just considered people as much as people are. Yeah, except the ones that aren't, because there's loads of droids that have like a, like, I can't think of a specific example. I'm sure. <laughs> well, yeah, sentient droids. There yeah. are, there are, <laughs> are there counterexamples? I don't know, probably, because none of it makes any sense. But it's that would really, be my alternative explanation. The droids are just really people too. So you can't, yeah. you can't just say, hey, you droid, go kill yourself. <laughs> if we dig deep enough into the the prequel mythology, oh, no doubt that there's a. <laughs> uh, well, there's okay. So in the <laughs> you're gonna love this in the extended footage of the Phantom Menace, there's oh, scavenger yeah. droids. So canon, so canon. Uh, yeah. But after after a pod, not podcast, <laughs> a pod after a pod racing thing crashes. There's droids that go out and collect the scrap and they literally, so they go out onto the race course and they collect broken bits of pod racers Mm -hmm. while the pod race is happening. And one of those droids, of course, it's in the way. It's it's actually stepping onto a race course where things are whizzing by a thousand kilometers a second or whatever and gets smashed to bits. It's like that seems to be an example of I don't know I don't know who literally put that droid in place. Or maybe it's an automaton, maybe it's got it's doing its own job for its own reason. But yeah. um but I don't know, that's that's pretty could be a bad example. But there's there's like loads of things like that. Where you st- you, once you start thinking about it, it's like that doesn't make any sense. What's the best rule about so, Star Wars? You don't talk about Star Wars. No, you don't think about Star Wars. Don't think about it. Just watch it. Don't think about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <clears throat> but yeah. I, I, yeah. So let's let's stop there. But like in general, I really liked it. Um, uh, porgs. Did you notice the gay porgs? <laughs> no. It's <laughs> in the background. In the background, there's some. So porgs are sexually dimorphic. You can have males and females. Yeah. And there's a bit when you see them cuddling. And they're male porks. Oh, <laughs> oh sneaky. Got that one past the censors, because oh. everyone in Hollywood hates gay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tim, Tim Morris, I remember that, that your, your long diatribe on that. Uh... Okay, so, that, so I think we should probably come back to Star Wars uh, a later point. And we've got the Solo movie is coming out later this year, so we're going to have to cover that as well. Okay, so. maybe we should roll them up a bit. I don't know. Okay, so... Um... Do you want to do the rest of these things, Mindhunter? Yeah, briefly. Like I say, briefly. Yeah. Mindhunter, a Netflix series. I don't have any of the details in front of me, but it's about it's a, it's based on a book which we have and I haven't read, and it's about the uh, you know the researchers who first came up with the idea in the 1970s that we've got these like serial killers locked away. 
how about we actually interview them and collect loads of data on their thinking and use that to inform us as goes the behavior of other killers. And so it's based on a true story where the two researchers forgotten their names. All I remember right now is that one of the actors does the voice for the um, Olaf the snowman in uh, the Frozen. <laughs> in Frozen. <laughs> That's all I remember. I refuse to do any research on this right now. But um, <clears throat> it would require copious Googling. But yeah, they, they go around and they interview real serial killers. Uh, not... <laughs> Uh, played by actors, I should say. Yeah. You know, they, they they visit real serial killers and they collect data, and uh, it's. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Thought it was brilliant, and um, I think there's only one season been released, but um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm not. I quite liked it, but uh, we can't watch it because you know it's a bit of a busman's holiday for Jenny. Um, she was. It's like yeah, it seems good, but I don't want to watch it. Uh, Fine. Okay. Okay. Um, it's the whole area is quite interesting because um, criminal profiling is often called a pseudoscience that it doesn't work. Right. That, mm. Mm. Um, My immediate wh- thought is they're they're all so different that what you've learned. Sorry, Gary, I don't mean to interrupt. You. Yeah, but. On the other hand, if you start from like the wild, crazy speculation you get on serial killers before the sixties and seventies, right? What mm. people thought, who the who people thought they could be, and what they were doing, mm. it's just completely wild and crazy. Whereas it becomes clear that this is a particular type of thing and a particular sort of behaviour. Yeah. A lot of these serial killers share, right? That I don't yeah. think had really been clocked before, and that's definitely a you know, because of, well, I don't know the exact history, but that sort of seemed to come into the fore around about this time. And I'm willing to believe these guys had something to do with that, you know, finding out what are these guys actually doing and what are their motivations? I I think at the most basic level, we know that if you have, uh, we know today that it's fairly accurate that if you find someone ticks three boxes, they've done, they've, they've displayed these sets of behaviors. They display a particular dislike for this group of people they live in this certain region, they have an interest in this certain subject, you can, based on all the other data points we've collected, therefore, they probably are approximately this age, they probably are from approximately this sector of society, like it's a white man in his 40s, that's that kind of thing. That is, that is, obviously, obviously, that is not watertight, but it's, it's now data-based enough for it to be really useful in, in you know, gathering what sort of people you are approximately dealing with. And if you imagine not having any of that data at all, literally yeah. just not having that data, that, that itself is a huge step. And I, and I want to emphasize that's never, that's never the, you know, the ultimate answer. There's always exceptions to these kinds of correlations. But as a generalization, I believe it works. Yes. I believe that, uh, just to be... Uh technical about it i believe the age thing is the one of the weakest points i think they don't predict age um but yeah the other things they do we do know now that serial killers stick within sort of their social class for example and tend to stick within their racial group so but i think that's just people tend to kill the sorts of people they're familiar with which is not was not predicted beforehand right and people didn't think that that, yeah. That's the point. To just to just to think that people just weren't collecting this data and weren't able to find these correlations, I think, is uh, is interesting. 
And this reminds me that I also watched the um, the Unabomber uh, series, uh, uh, which is about the uh, apparently based, well apparently it, it is based on the true story of how they um, they succeeded in um, getting hold of uh, oh my god I forgot his name Kaczynski yep <clears throat> and that's uh, that, that again is Sam Worthington bizarrely in loads of things i can't really decide whether he's any good or any or not <laughs> sam Worthington plays uh, fitzgerald the main investigator i think he's called fitzgerald and that is that's also mostly a story about profiling it's like they've got their ideas about where the unibomber lives and what he's like and some of it's totally way off and some of it is absolutely spot on and it depends on finding this uh, this previous stuff he's written and he turns out to be like a failed academic and that's mm. why he hates university professors so much and i uh, which, yeah i wish it, i could rem- i wish i was more of a I could remember this but i do believe that that's one of the famous misses of profile yeah that they got it some a lot of the details so horrendously wrong that it was misleading i think <clears> that is the case I should the TV it. series, yeah, the TV series is mostly about, uh, and again, I think this is a Netflix series. I think all I watch these days is Netflix, frankly. Uh, although I watch, I watch Amazon TV as well. I also watch The Man in the High Castle. Yeah, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, yeah, it's mostly about the main investigator's fight with the rest of the administration. The, the rest of the investigation team, they're saying they they just want to push out. They found some really really weak links in the Unabomber's uh, writings that they think might be significant. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, these are total red herrings. It's like, you've got to go with this. And, um, but so it I think, felt like, a lo- sorry, it felt like a logical descendant of Mindhunter. That's, yeah. that's, I think these are connected. I think what's really uh, interesting about some, a lot of this stuff is it's bound up with the history of psychology and related fields. And it's such a mess, right? That, so many of these things are so pseudosciencey, and so many people's ideas are so bizarre, right? And I don't think people realise how odd a lot of the ideas are in, um, you know, psychotherapy and stuff like this. Um, and psychology is actually a pretty. It took a long time for anyone to take it seriously, and it's taken a long time for the pseudosciences to fall away from it. So people think that psychotherapy and psychoanalysis are somewhat similar to psychology. Well, mm-hmm. they're dealing with the same subject, but they're completely different approaches, right? The psychology is basically, well, let's just take a hard science look at this, at mental events. Whereas psychoanalysis and psycho- yeah, that sort of stuff and all sorts of related fields like that are more um, just random guesses early guesses and bear no relation to the reality of how the brain works um and unfortunately psychiatrists who are medical doctors for a long time were quite into freudian psychoanalysis which is just a complete pseudoscience um which has muddied the waters because you have these apparently legitimate scientists or science-based thinkers running with the pseudoscience and mixing it up with psychology. And so the whole thing's a big mess. And I think that a lot of criminology stuff, like Mindhunter and all this stuff, it's it's suffered from that a bit, right? That there's this... <laughs> that the mental sciences are, in, are such a mess and that people have such weird, crazy ideas and half-baked ideas about all sorts of stuff and no principles. Uh, no 
intellectual, <laughs> intellectual <laughs> principles. Ooh. That, yeah, that it's all a big, yeah, that they've never been able to, well, that it's been really difficult to get a coherent study out of it. And I think criminology suffers from this in general. Anyway. You should, you should say very briefly that, that you have an insider view of this world, just very briefly, for those who oh, don't yeah, know. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I probably mentioned it before, but yeah, Jenny's, Jenny's uh, my wife, is a clinical psychologist, and she um, works with um, kids going into the care system and kids going into custody system or coming out, which are often the same kids. Um, so mm. yeah, that's what she works with. Um, she's more working on like what systems you have for them rather than um, individual like therapy for these kids because spoiler alert individual therapy is not very effective if you've had a shit life um, at changing your behavior because it's oh, not really yeah. it's not really your fault it's the yeah. fault of everyone around you um, so you really got to change Beautiful. the systems rather than the person yeah um, yeah so yeah, that's why yeah, I do know a bit about it, and I do think about it a lot. Mm. And also just being interested in, uh, you know, pseudosciences and that sort of stuff. And um, I do think it's really interesting. The sceptic movement, has that kind of died or...? <laughs> um, well, what I sense is, as someone who's never really wanted to die on any particular hill, is... That's not true. I said that badly. Whatever. Um, I... My sense is that the same people are still doing the same thing, but there has been a move away from what you might call organized capital S scepticism. Yeah. Because because like every single endeavor in human history, it has dissolved into tribalism and that you do have like staunch defenders of a certain point of view who then basically think they're entitled to exhibit a particular kind of assholery which um means that they've you know shamed and bullied people within their group because they don't worship at the church of dawkins or you know whatever yeah yeah the whole um, fighting so, thing it just but, seemed to important <clears throat> to me but, and i think you know there's a so, yeah this sorry this could go off at a tangent so I'll, I'll stop there yeah my point was that i think it was interesting that the skeptics movement and still they haven't really tackled um the mental sciences and associated pseudosciences which is a um, massive thing in the world yeah no i, I know I, I do know a, a certain um oh god what is he I, I basically know of a qualified expert in child psychology who who has written articles on this in the possibly the skeptical inquirer yeah what's his name French. um, um not Christopher French, Not Christopher although that French. might be that might be who you're thinking of. I'm yeah. thinking of an American guy who I met a couple of years ago. Um, but so I know, I know there are people making noises that are overlapping with what you're saying, but maybe it's it's not as well known as um. Yeah, it would yeah. never seem to be one of the major themes, like you know mm. your skeptics podcasts and things like this. It would just virtually never come up. Um, and I find that interesting because it's one of the real world things. You know, it's much bigger than homeopathy or something like this, which they bang on about all the goddamn time. Um, it's a soft target, I guess. Homeopathy, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the, uh, you know, psychoanalysis is a harder target because its problems are complicated. Mm. <laughs> and it's not obvious. Well, that's just all completely wrong. And it's obvious that it's wrong because. 
yeah, it's a sprawling sort of concept about what things happen and the counter science is not as strong as we'd like. So, yeah, I guess this is why. But still, it's the bit. It's it's a huge thing. It has big impacts on society, and the skeptics movement eh, pretty much silent on it, which is kind well of annoying. Okay, so there's there's lots of uh, skeptical with a capital S commentary on psychiatry. If you just do like if you Google skeptic society psychiatry, I, I see quite a few articles that look uh, that look um, relevant. But um, yeah, you would occasionally get people mentioning that psychiatrists had gone down the psychoanalysis rabbit no. hole. But um, yeah, okay. So for an obvious example, it's the huge um, amount of uh, shouting there was about homeopathy on the NHS. Well, I guarantee you, there's an awful lot of government money going into um, utterly insane mental health interventions. In fact, most of it. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, well, that was okay, a tangent. Yeah, yeah <laughs> just one, just one last thing on this. Okay, I googled Skeptic Society psychoanalysis, and no, they they do. There are yeah, some people on top of this. There's there's an article here published uh, November 2017, the Skeptic Society and Skeptical Skeptics magazine, which as its leader line is psychoanalysis is not only pseudoscience, as most philosophers of science agree, they for different reasons, but air quotes, the queen of pseudosciences. So there are, hopefully there are some people on top of this. But then yeah. I've also just, just seen things come up where skeptics are defending the validity and application of psychoanalysis. So, yeah, yeah. that's We're, worrying. <clears throat> anyway, yeah. Okay, yeah, so yeah, right. So, so there you go. It's a, one of our little painted <laughs> uh, tangents. Um so, uh, Altered Carbon, this is a Netflix TV series. It's like sci-fi. It's kind of like set in a couple of centuries in the future. And it's about the idea that you that in this future, um, people have like a sort of disc inserted into the spinal column and you basically download your consciousness into it. And therefore, if your physical body uh, is destroyed, it's okay because your consciousness is downloaded and you can just um, like download it into a new blank body which is called a sleeve upload, and it's all about, upload. sorry 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 whatever uh, you can be uh well they probably in- say download in the show because <laughs> they always say download no matter which direction the data's going everyone says download anyway don't say anything that's just me um, okay all right they sorry. they uh, they put the consciousness <laughs> yeah, into into a sleeve and it's all about a certain character who um yeah, his like body was killed, but he's now in like a new one, and he's I don't know, he's just going around doing detecting work. And I'm only a couple of episodes in. Altered Carbon, it's like okay. It's got like a lot of sort of Blade Runner esque visuals. Mm. It's very much on the idea of um, like a uh, a sort of dark, sprawling, totally chaotic, untermesh kind of like lower level of society. And then if you go up high enough in fancy fancy pants floating car vehicles you go above the clouds and there's super buildings you know like kilometers high structures above the clouds that are grandiose baroque mansion like garden things and it's all pretty and light and castles and everything and uh, so so the, and uh, what i've got to say have what i've seen so far is 
it's not particularly good ultra carbon it's like it's it's <laughs> kind of okay it's not great some of the visuals are, are interesting um just the, the effects are great and stuff a very blade runner um but there's a few ideas in it that are compelling enough for you to want to keep watching or for me to keep watching so uh one of the like i say only three episodes in but uh the main character is so good i can't even remember his name or the name of the actor or anything uh, the, the actor's the guy who was in the killing and uh, he was in uh season two of um, house of cards um um he he befriends an AI, and there's an AI who works as who obviously you know manifests himself as a as a person as a man in a suit who basically runs a hotel, and um, I kind of I kind of like that idea when this this is so plausible now, um, the idea that you know there's that there are AIs that absolutely you know mimic the human behavior and consciousness and stuff so well that you would interact with them as if they were people on the other end of a telephone mm-hmm. um and so so that there's a few my point is there's a few ideas like that that make me want to keep going back to it but otherwise you know i was watching the the most recent the the new, newest episode i was watching i'm like this this storyline is just i've just got no interest in the storyline but there's these little details that i want to watch it for so um, yeah it's a shame when they sort of fluff something like that isn't it where they just I, it, kind of get it wrong like they got all these interesting things and then they just don't write it well enough and it's just I like, totally uh, it's, it's cause I, I think the main story is the investigation of yeah I don't even know I'm, everything is a detective show now have you noticed this everything yeah, detective shows here, detective shows there. I like detective shows, so I'm not complaining too much. But, jeez, ev- everything is a goddamn detective show. Well, if they're done well, then they are the best thing. They appeal to all the things that we find interesting. But, yeah, if they're not done well, <laughs> Sherlock, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're going to get some hat for that. Jesus, what a disaster. I hate that show. I really wanted to like it, and I watched nearly all of it apart from the last season. But, um yeah, and I, so I, whenever I talk about, so I mentioned in Altered Carbon this AI, this character called Poe, because uh, he's very Edgar Allan Poe. But he, the hotel is called the Raven. Um, I I always think of. Have you seen her? Yep. The, the yeah. I again that that just feels now to those who don't know. It's all about the relationship between the main human character, who's a he's like a freelance writer, and yet somehow he lives in this like swanky New York apartment. As they well, because do. this is the future, right? <sighs> I thought that was quite well done. Like, what is his job exactly? Some sort of writer, sort of person, something, something. You know, but oh, yeah, I just, just Phoenix. yeah, Joaquin, yeah, Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix is the main dude, yeah. and. Her is an AI voiced by oh dear I can't remember her name. Um, Scarlett Johansson. Plays, huh? Scarlett Johansson. That's what I said. Yeah, yeah. So so it's about an affair. No, it's not an affair. It's like it's like a relationship. It's a love story between the two of them, and uh, that's you know. See, people complain almost, that we I hate all films, but we just never talk about films that I liked. I liked her. Why didn't we ever talk about that? We just didn't. I guess probably we watched it years after it came out or something. It's it's not been. Uh, yeah, uh, well, okay. it doesn't have I any animals in it, but it is sci-fi. Take, the the reason we've discussed the things we have is because they've been relevant to the zoo, yeah. to the universe because they involve monsters yeah. or or animals of some kind, and it just so happens they've all been a certain kind of film. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And on that note, and on that note, uh, 
just went to see Black Panther mm-hmm. <laughs> going into Marvel <laughs> Universe. Um, yeah, I, li- I liked Black Panther, but um, I, the, I just felt utterly conflicted. Apologies to those who read these thoughts already on Facebook, but I just felt utterly conflicted about the storyline because you, I'm guessing you haven't seen it. You're not down the cinema on the day those Marvel movies come out. I also just saw Thor Ragnarok last night, so I should catch up on that. You, you know. know my rule um, about superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> never okay. again, never more. Just, just very briefly, very briefly. Black Panther, so it's about Wakanda, this nation somewhere in tropical Africa, uh, super high-tech, streets ahead of everyone else, the best society, uh, you know, the, the cleverest, most democratic, most egalitarian society has ever existed, but it's sort of super secret, and everyone thinks that Wakanda is some like little tin pot republic, and, you know, it's just like rainforest and desert somewhere, but, uh, but yeah, they're streets ahead of everyone else, and they're keeping it secret, and it's about the king, who's got an alter ego, he dresses up in this special suit his sister is like um this was this was a pretty good film in terms of pushing not only uh pan-african as the the new term for african-american people not only pushing like you know black african sort of culture and their involvement in tech and society that was at the front of the story which great uh there's some very important big female characters and his sister i think she's called Oh, is she called Siri? I've forgotten her name, but she's the main techie person. That was that was all that was all cool. But right, there's a challenger to the throne. There's this other guy who his bloodline means that he should be the real king, and he's been living his whole life in kind of like um uh, a poorer part of New York, and he was and his story's really sad. He was like sort of abandoned as a kid. His dad was murdered. He's finally gotten back to Wakanda, and like he's the rightful ruler. And he challenges the king in this day of this like ritual combat thing, and he wins. He wins according to the rules. And then the whole rest of the film is how I think he's called. Uh, <laughs> why do I do this? Okay, <laughs> okay, main baddie guy, whatever he's called. I think he's called Eric Stevens. You know, um, most people don't know the names of any of the characters in films, anyway, right? Well, I don't know okay. any of the names. I watch a whole wow. film, and if they have a scene where they're referring to people by name, I'm like, <laughs> unless they give some sort of description or a clue, I don't know who they are. I know it's not just me, but I always think if you're describing a film, you should at least have gone to the trouble of remembering the names or checking them out. But clearly, no, because hey. names are totally unimportant. Anyway, okay. So, but anyway, so 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 main baddie guy, he's like I say, he's got this pitiful backstory like no fault of his own through his own childhood he's the rightful ruler he comes back home he challenges he wins but the whole film is about him being the bad guy and how they have to overthrow him and i'm just like okay so they they he definitely has some problematic plans in place he wants to he wants to basically democratize he wants to sort of basically use wakandan tech to arm the rest of the world and in particular black people he wants to arm sort of his people as it were and send send wakandan high-tech weaponry to them and liberate them and it's like well on the one hand it's like so you're talking about i mean arming any group of people and telling them to just like go nuts maybe that's not the best idea in the world (laughs) but i just didn't ever feel that his motives were (laughs) like what what why couldn't they Shouldn't shouldn't they have said okay, okay, well done? You know, you're you're now here and you want to do this stuff. That's cool. But 
have you considered this? Have you considered doing it this way? You know, that's not how we do things. Listen to this, you know, explaining to him. You can you can reform, you'd like to think, because he's, he's clearly not like a psychopath or like a broken person. He's clearly like intelligent and stuff. You could, you'd like to think you could reason with anyone and turn them around. And I just didn't, it, it was never clear to me. I've only seen the film once, but it was never clear to me why he was so bad and why they had to over, overthrow him, apart from the fact that he overthrew the main character, the, the actual Black Panther. So uh, that's, yeah, that's sort of, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I liked it. It was, it was a really good film, and it just looked it looked fantastic. So there you go. That's that's what I wanted to say about that. And uh, that's your problem if you're an absolute monarchy, right? Maybe they shouldn't have had that stupid rule about anyone can come back who's a rightful leader and have some sort of stupid contest. There was maybe a, there that was nice... that was their problem, Darren. Maybe that was their problem. It, I think I think it was because there was even lines where some of the characters said to one another, like, "You got to help me overthrow him." And a person who works for like the royal guard, she says, "She says overthrow? Are you? Do you realise how this works? I can't do that. I work for the throne. It's not my job to. I can't overthrow someone because they are the king. Whatever. So that so. is why absolute monarchy, or not absolute monarchy, but that's why monarchy is a system that kind of works have we discussed this before <laughs> not on the podcast <laughs> not okay. on the Tetsu podcast. i don't mean it's the best system of government by any stretch but what, I, what but its advantage is that you can't just overthrow someone because those that system is just leads to constant revolution and overthrowing and instability whereas in a monarchy you just like yeah well they're a bit crap but we just have to put up with it until they're dead <laughs> and then the next one might be better and they can't be overthrown either by someone that's power hungry. So, well, in theory. So the idea is that you just don't you don't just have this succession of bloodthirsty, power hungry people in power because they're the people that get power. If you can just overthrow, 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 and instead you get essentially sort of random people. Random people, but if it's a, it's not literally random, but their their thirst for power. Is, okay. And their brutality oh, mm-hmm. and things like this are somewhat more random. Yeah. They don't, they're not, because otherwise you're picking for the most ruthless people rather than people who could have. So you're saying it has to be like a, an established bloodline that has to maintain, that has to maintain rule. And so the the rulers are the, who they are just because they're born into that role. Yeah. Oh, well, you could have another system where you just choose someone at random when someone dies and say, right, you're the king now or queen. Yeah, I'd prefer and that. And no one can overthrow yeah. you until you're dead. But yeah. So, but bloodline is the simpler way of doing that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I just you know, I just don't feel happy about the fact that people can be so absurdly wealthy just because of who they are. But then. It's not like anything's going to be well, any different. I tell you what, though, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be a a monarch, would you? I'd hate it. Be horrible. Why? Why? I'd love it. Because you can't just do what you like. You want to spend all your time writing about tetrapods? Uh uh-uh. uh You've got like six meetings you've got to go to today and be nicey nicey to a bunch of dictators or yeah. But if that was my or... thing, I would, I would, I would do it and I would be good at it because I wouldn't have to. Okay, I would. I would obviously want to embark on my own project. Interested but... in animals? Bad luck. No. No, you can. You can. That's that's not true. I mean, there are loads of modern people in royalty that have devoted huge swathes of time not, to personal they're not, projects. They're not rulers. What? They're not rulers. 
No, I'm thinking of Prince Charles and his series of books and his watercolours. He's not um, even the king. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even so, you know, like, yeah, Queen's goddamn busy. I, but no, I don't, I don't think you're right. What? The, the, even the Queen spends like half the year strangling pheasants with her bare hands and shooting grouse and stuff and yeah. walking with her corgis on the beach. Mm-hmm. She does. Mm-hmm. They, they have infinite leisure time and it's not entirely true. However, <laughs> our monarchs are not real monarchs. Are they? They're just figureheads. They don't really run anything. No. So you're Imagine being the monarch and running a country. Well, exactly. You tell that's me you're going to have any time. A president or a prime minister. No, that's, a, from- no, that's a, like a an actual monarch yeah it's, more like exactly it's yeah, more yeah. like being an actual president apart yeah. from the one, one in America a permanent Jesus president Christ. and head of state right yeah, yeah. like a president of the United States but yeah, forever but I think I think if horrible, you had that I, 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 I don't know I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I could do a good job so if anybody out there is uh, <laughs> like you know you know what my problem is John my problem is I give I give too much I'm a, I'm a giver right there's givers and take I'm a giver and I've give. And I give so much money away to charity that I, I, I damage my own finances. And if I was like a, a mega trilly billionaire... See, like, I think you're just traumatised by being too poor for too long. And you're like, oh, they've got money? I want to be that. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you really, really don't. <laughs> you could make the world an infinitely better place if you were as rich as they are. The amount of money they've got. It's unbelievable. Who? Our royal family. The British royal family. Just all right, but it's all in sort of land, isn't it? So they basically no, own not. the land. Don't no, they? it's not. The Queen that bought one of her grandsons a helicopter for his birthday. They are swimming in money. Oh, a helicopter? Yeah, but that's not. Oh, that's not only eight million pounds. <laughs> but yeah, that's. But yeah, seriously, eight million pounds? Yeah, yeah. yeah what what sort there of problems could you solve with that? Hundreds of thousands of people change. with that sort of money. Pa. <laughs> Yeah. Just because okay. she is very rich, I think she's probably a, one of the richest people in the world. But I, birthday, in terms of actually round. freedom to spend it, <laughs> no. Bill Gates okay. is who you want to be. <laughs> the head of a foundation yeah. with like whatever money you took from Microsoft, sixty billion dollars or whatever. <clears throat> That's who you want to be, Darren. You don't want to be the queen. Okay, so there we go. <laughs> another another of our small tangents. Uh, welcome to our many new listeners, by the way. Uh, this is uh, this is an, an unusual episode of the podcast. Uh, we do need to build up the uh, listener numbers. Uh, this is a uh, a graph depicting uh, listener numbers over time. Mm-hmm. N is that way. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, we are currently on, uh, last time I checked, it was 4.9 million listeners. Uh-huh. So, um, Blade Runner 2049, did you watch that? Nope. Jesus. Okay, right. I, yeah. <gasps> terrible secret, Darren. Terrible, terrible secret. Which I'm only going to tell you and our 4.9 million listeners. I didn't like Blade Runner all that much. <laughs> Bastard! Just made me spit my coffee everywhere. <laughs> now I know people are going to be very angry about this. I just didn't like it that much. So oh, the actual film, though. Yeah, the original cartoon prequel. The original film. I watched it and thought, eh. Well, so I don't know what to say about that. There you go. Whole so my, my enthusiasm for watching a sequel or whatever it is. Is it a sequel? Uh, yes. Um, it's a weird is, I've got to say, it's low. Okay. Now, <laughs> well, I'm, uh, you know, I have like serious criticism of a lot of films. 
and their reasons yes. I don't like things and blah de blah de blah de blah. I don't really have that sort of criticism of Blade Runner. I'm perfectly willing to stipulate that it's a good film. I yeah. just didn't like it that much. Okay. So okay, I fine, don't particularly fine. want to watch yep. Blade, Blade Runner 2049. 49. 49. 49. <laughs> All right, we won't talk about it. Um, yeah, another film I feel conflicted on. I really enjoyed it, but then when I came away and thought about it a little bit, it's like, ooh, that was really weird. <laughs> There's some stuff in there that's really odd. Um, and at the risk of sounding like a, a parrot who reads other people's opinions online and regurgitates them, I'm not going to even talk about it, and there's no point. But uh, let's just say that the whole – another one of those films where the whole battle of the sexes, the whole <laughs> the portrayal of women is uh, really, really Which weird. Which film are we talking about here? 20, Blade, Blade, Blade Runner 2049. Runner. Okay. Blade Runner 2049. Um, uh, Robin Wright is the – uh, a main-ish character in it, although she gets killed fairly. Oh, spoiler! Sorry, she gets killed fairly early on. But um, it just felt to be another one of these films that they didn't really think that. I don't know. There's, it's, it's like you have a, you have a bunch of male characters, and you don't take time to develop female characters. And when you have women in it, they are portrayed. Again, like I've read, I, 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 what I will say sounds like I've just, I'm just copying what other people have said, so I'm, I'm reluctant to say it. But it, it did feel very much like women are just in there as objects, and it was so much, so heavy on that that I came away from it thinking that they had deliberately constructed a future where, where. 95% of women exist for that purpose. <laughs> They're yeah. all prostitutes or dancers or models or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, this is such a problem, but like. You can depict a sexist universe in a non-sexist way. So Game of Thrones, I think, is a good example of this. The yeah. world they're in is sexist, but the way the show does it is not sexist, right? Yeah. You don't. Or if, feel... there, if there's a group of women that are being controlled, they're being controlled by women. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, even if they're not, right? Like, it's it's a depiction of a sexist world, but you don't sort of feel like the female characters are just sort of empty... They don't have their own stories, yeah. Yeah, they've all, you know, you've got, you've got their stories, you've got what they're feeling, you know, that sort yeah. of stuff. It's just, yeah, it's just, it annoys me that films can't get this right when television seems to have moved on already. But then the whole artistic um, effort seems to be going into television these days, which I think is good because I think television shows are a better medium for a lot of things. You know, well, they films say are too short. Are- uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a grown-up. I've got. I can. I can pay attention to a story for longer than an hour and a half, or even three hours, right? So, films are good for certain things, but I, yeah, they've certainly nosedived recently, or haven't changed when they should. If you do watch Blade Runner 2049, I'd be interested to hear and hear your your take on that. So, oh, yeah. Uh, okay. So, and again, I could say loads more about it, but let's not right now. And the uh, final thing. Um, uh, Okay, at the time of speaking, the Oscars in America have just happened, and The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro uh, has done really well, and everyone's talking about it right now. And I haven't seen The Shape of Water because of you? Nope. Weirdly, um, this film, I don't want to say passed me by, but I didn't hear about it until it was finishing its – I think it's finished at the cinema. Surely it must be if it's getting Oscars now. 
it's not yeah. it's not on it's not on right now I, I presume it's from months back and i didn't hear about August. it until okay there you go i didn't hear about it until either it's run at the cinema had finished which is interesting because that just shows that wherever it's advertising was wasn't hitting me um but after it was out you know i so I, th- I think by now probably everybody knows it is basically about uh, a, a love affair between a aquatic kind of merman, humanoid monster type creature from the Amazon, I think, and a human woman. Uh, the merman creature is brought to like a, brought to a facility in the USA or something, and so uh, and. Uh, if you know the Hellboy universe, Mike Mignola's Hellboy, there's a character called Abe Sapien, who's also one of these aquatic merman-type creatures. And I have heard the speculation that The Shape of Water is meant to be like a Hellboy prequel, which apparently is totally not, but it could be sort of in the same universe, the same kind of creature. Sounds also, again, I haven't seen the film, so I can't say any more about it, but sounds also like, you know, the creatures from the um, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon film. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've got to see it. I've got to see it. It sounds fascinating. So Tony and I went to um, see if it was available the other day, and we ended up watching a load of other Guillermo del Toro stuff, like Crimson Peak. <laughs> wow, that was an amazing film. I don't like um, any of his films. Yeah, well, that's you, isn't it? <laughs> but, like, what? Why is he taken seriously? Um, well, you know what I is said? Is it this Pan's like, Labyrinth film that everyone loved? Is that why he's taken seriously? Because f- yeah. none of these other films are serious. Okay, you know, you know what I said about this difference between uh, – this is not a criticism of anyone, but this difference between visceral film watching, watching and cerebral film watching, um, I definitely think that if you watch films and are like, like I say, you know, oh, wow, the effects, oh, wow, the lighting, Guillermo del Toro, don't – okay, I think the Pacific Rim um, story arc is – a tangent off of this so we should like maybe i don't want to say forget about it but don't think about that as the main canon of what he's done no um i've seen two other films by him yeah so i've seen mimic and i've seen hellboy oh mimic is his i didn't know that yeah okay so hellboy and the second hellboy film hellboy the golden army and uh crimson peak and uh, the shape of water and what's the other one i'm thinking of yeah pan's labyrinth um yeah, it's the, you know, he emphasizes himself, and I think this is obvious from the films, it's like they are uh, these spectacularly well-lit, beautiful, like well-lit sounds like I'm talking about high, a lot of lighting, but I mean, just the the, the framing of the 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 scenes, the, the, the cinematography scenes and the visuals, is good. The, the cinematography, that kind of stuff, yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of why he's seen as this, uh, yeah, good filmmaker mm. whereas um, i but, think that's not justified i mean i haven't seen pan's labyrinth to be fair maybe i should watch it but i don't, didn't yeah, like any should, of his other films so uh, you, should, you should watch pan's labyrinth i mean it's, it's not it's nothing like um it does it's it's not i mean hellboy obviously is a movie based about yeah uh, a graphic novel or based on a comic right so it's from the comic universe, so it's got comic-y stuff. Pan's Labyrinth doesn't have that. It's a, it's in Spanish, um, and it's about you know stuff during the war, Second World War, I think. So yeah, you sh- you should watch that. But um, I, it doesn't feel to me at all like Hellboy. It doesn't feel at all like Pacific Rim. Um, 
Uh, and like I say, Shape of Water, I look forward to seeing I it. think people probably like it because it's in Spanish. They think it's more serious. I'm not saying it's a bad film. It's just people tend to overrate in that respect. Like well, They think that foreign language films are more serious. For some reason. Uh, yeah, that foreign, sounds, like, foreign to English. Sorry, that sounds absolutely <laughs> that sounds absolutely reasonable, and I can understand that. But watch it and see if you still have that opinion, because I still think it's a pretty good film. Um, just an example. There's so it's, no, 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 no. I'm not going to say anything else because some of the characters in it are so cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I shouldn't. I shouldn't diss a film I haven't seen. Um, but I didn't like Mimic all that much. Uh, I read I've the short forgotten. story that Mimic is based on, which was a really cool short story. Yeah about like an insect that it was a human mimic right oh yeah yeah um and uh it's yeah i don't know it's a funny little short story that's i thought was really pretty clever and then the film is just kind of some stupid bloody yeah didn't work just thought it was rubbish i've got very vague memories of it because it's a long time ago. Uh, we should mention, of course, that the film you will be queuing up at the door to buy tickets for, Pacific Rim Uprising, <laughs> comes out comes out in, I don't know, less than 20 days. Comes out at the end of March. Yeah, definitely going to go see that. It looks awesome. <laughs> I'm not seeing okay. that. Okay, so we shall wrap it up there. Um, so I suggest what we do is just say the usual goodbyes and uh, a reminder to people we do we are trying to boost get over that that little hump on the graph get up to the see a spill where i spat the coffee out (laughs) (laughs) get over the five million list the mark and um so what podcasting platforms are we on are we on stitcher i don't know itunes we shouldn't (laughs) be on stitcher because what stitcher does is edits your podcast and puts ads in it. Oh, okay. Screw and we that don't then. get that um, money. They get that money. So screw Stitcher. Don't use Stitcher, people. I don't know why anyone would use Stitcher. Podcasts are free anyway. Um. So, yeah. Well, we're on iTunes. We're on all the podcast listing things. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is to encourage our kind and generous listeners to, you know, say positive things about us, post positive reviews, share the word, Tell your friends who have similar interests to you and to us to listen to this goddamn podcast because you know um, we're never gonna we're never gonna be super famous and uh, uh, have those solid gold houses. Yeah, uh, <laughs> without <laughs> without without that. So, um, anything else to say before we wrap up? Uh, well, follow us. Yeah. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. Darren doesn't need any more followers. I need more followers. Uh, I'm at the the John Conway. You know what I've found, Darren, which is rather disturbing? I pick up more followers when I'm not tweeting. (laughs) Well, what does that tell you, John? Do you know why? That it's a waste of time tweeting. I should just not tweet. No, it's because you've got some super famous and extremely popular colleagues. Who um, yeah, yeah. mentioned you? Mark um, Yeah, but <clears throat> that doesn't explain why they. Yeah, and then they say, say a recent tweet from me. They're like, eh, actually, I don't like this dude. <laughs> unfollow, unfollow, <laughs> unfollow. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, so I tweet at Tet. Oh, I forgot the 
okay, let's start that again. Hold on a second. Let's do this right. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> I tweet at no, 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 quicker, easier, more seductive. <laughs> At Tetsu. <laughs> um, a blog at Tetrapods already currently hosted at Scientific American. And uh, please buy our various books. I didn't mention Evolution in Minutes. Actually, no, I did in that cruel thing at the start. Evolution in Minutes, which is, you, please buy it. It's only nine ninety nine. Really good little book on the history of evolution. I'm showing it to John, even though he's already seen it. It's cool. Little square book. <clears throat> um. And we want to reg- get into the habit of regularly uh, releasing podcasts. So stay tuned for the next episode. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye now. A reading from Monster of the Mere by Jonathan Downs. A few years ago, I had a spat with a Norwegian gentleman called Jan Over Sundberg. He had heard tell of various late-night drunken shenanigans that had taken place at the 40 and Times Unconvention, and from that had drawn the inference that I was dead drunk all the time I was engaged in fieldwork. This was a totally unwarranted slur and sparked of a slanging match on the internet between him and both me and an Irish guy called Dave Walsh, who'd been unfortunate enough to have an accompany Sundberg on one of his expeditions. David left the expedition to a Swedish lake, reputedly the haunt of a monster with the same name as one of Homer Simpson's sisters-in-law, after only a few days and ended up... Have I read this before? And ended ended up being accused of being a devil worshipper. (laughs) Whilst I, who have never met the geezer, was accused of being a raving alcoholic and eventually, quote, a disgrace to my country... (laughs) I threatened to punch Sunberg on the nose if I ever saw him face to face. And after a flurry of vitriolic emails, which eventually led to him being banned from at least one online community, the matter rested. The previous evening, as we had loaded up the car with our voluminous amounts of groceries, I smiled at myself as the thought of at the thought of Sunberg as we loaded a couple of trays of lager into the boot of the Jaguar. <laughs> continued preparations for our big adventure.